Webster's Dictionary defines working as engaged in work, especially for wages or salary, and actor as one that acts. Tonight's guest certainly fits that definition. Who among us could forget his transcendent embodiment of the very essence of civic life as townsperson in Holy Moses, for which he was probably given wages, or the existential dread he personified, urban dehumanization humanized in the role of screaming man on the subway in The Marshall Chronicles, a series which I assume so redefined television that I never heard of it before today. We will cover all of this and more because there is much more. As director Amanda Charlton, a previous guest on this program to discuss 1991's Silence of the Lambs, said in reference to our guest, this is what an acting career looks like. And our guest is actor and director Lee Wilkoff. Lee, welcome. Uh, happy to be here. That was Chris's- I bet people are surprised that that's who got introduced. They thought it was going to be somebody else. <laughs> is it going to be Pacino? Is it? Gonna be... Well, they're going to be really surprised because he was not in uh, Holy Moses. That's, he wasn't? You would have remembered him. Holy Moses. Had you ever heard of it before? I have heard of Holy Moses, yes. I did not remember Townsperson. I That's think on I, you. Was, I was actually, there was a giant. There was like this huge shadow of a giant. They didn't have the giant. Of course. And then the giant Who's got re- money for relieved giant? himself <laughs> on the townspeople. townspeople. Wow. And that was the scene. Okay, well, and Chris, the part you were born to play. And then I met Milos Forman for some movie. I think it was Cuckoo's Nest. And he said, what have you just done? And I said, I just got Peter peed on by a giant. And... I didn't get the, the Wow, you could have been in Cuckoo's Nest. <laughs> you you would have been good in Cuckoo's that Nest. Been, that would have been special. Um, Chris did a humorous James Lipton intro of you. I'm going to take a couple of minutes here just to do a more serious intro of you because, Lee, as regular listeners of the pod will know, the highest compliment we can pay an actor whose IMDb page we mine for the incredible nuggets and depth and decades of service, you represent this probably better than anyone Certainly anyone we've ever had on the pod. Yeah. What's but we haven't had anybody. Cop? I'm probably the oldest person then you've had on the pod. Probably, that, but we're not ageist here, Lee. So. Absolutely. Well, we it's just because look yeah, I've been around long. You've been around a long why, time. That's why <laughs> it so, goes back so many decades. You are the definition of the working actor. Lee Wilkoff, for those listening, let's start in the theater. He originated the role of Seymour in the original and legendary 1982 off-Broadway production of Little Shop of Horrors and also originated the role of Samuel Bick in Stephen Sondheim's musical nerd favorite, Assassins. His performance in the 1999 revival of Kiss Me Kate garnered him a Tony nomination for Featured Actor in a Musical. Other Broadway credits include Sweet Charity, movie version directed by Bob Fosse, yes. I believe. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, and my and production. Your was directed by Bob Fosse. Well, he wasn't supposed to. He, he was a supervisor, but he came in after like a week of seeing it, and the guy that was directing it the next day was bringing Bob coffee, and Bob <laughs> never left. <laughs> and then he brought Gwen Verdon on. So wow. I got to work with both of them. Wow. That. We just did all that jazz on the pod a few weeks ago. Lee was also in the front page. She Loves Me, Michael Frayn's Democracy, Breakfast at Tiffany's, The Odd Couple, and most recently, Waitress. There's about 15 other ones that I'm leaving off there. I'm just citing some this of the highlights. Select. His TV career spans from late 70s National Lampoon television efforts like Disco Beaver from Outer Space and the TV version of Animal House to 1980s hour-long episodics, my favorites, like Heart to Heart, Hunter, Scarecrow and Mrs. King, Perry Mason, Matlock, and roles in fascinatingly noteworthy series like Max Headroom, Cop Rock, and Beverly Hills Bunts, a short-lived Hill Street Blues spinoff starring a pre-Andy Sipowitz Dennis Franz. 
Lee also turned in reliably funny and subtle performances alongside and amidst comedy heavyweights like Jonathan Winters, Madeline Kahn, and Bob Newhart. His recent TV credits include era-defining shows like High Maintenance and The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. His film credits, people, include Sidney Lumet's final film, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead, Howard Stern's Private Parts, School of Rock, This Boy's Life, and The Last Seduction director John Dahl's first feature film, Kill Me Again. And Lee's own directorial debut, is that true, film? Yes. Directorial debut, No Pay Nudity, which we're going to discuss today, and which I described on our pod's Instagram as both a love letter to and cautionary tale about the acting life, which stars an excellent cast of pro actors, including Gabriel Byrne, Francis Conroy, Nathan Lane, Boyd Gaines, and Jeremy Shamos in an excellent turn as a veterinarian. I'm leaving out dozens of credits here. This is just to give you a taste of what Lee has been doing in his career since the 1970s. And apparently he's managed to be a husband, a father, and a beloved friend at the same time, which in this business is almost or even more impressive than the credits themselves. More than that, he seems to be one of those guys who everyone loves and respects, and he seems to have managed to keep his sanity and his sense of humor along the way. Lee, welcome to Full Cast and Crew. Thank you. Clearly he didn't speak to everybody, but... No, we, we did. We just cut those those out. Do you have some like cantankerous moments where you've had sharp elbows and it would be hard to be in show business for 50 years and not have those moments, but you do seem to be one of those guys. Everyone is like, oh, I love Lee Wilcox. Believe it or not, I was probably at my crankiest doing when they asked, what's the favorite thing you've ever done? At least on stage, they assume Little Shop. Right. Little Shop was often fraught mm. with drama. Just for some reason, and that's probably where my elbows were, if they were sharp at all, I was was cranky. And do you think that's because it was something new, something that maybe hadn't been done before, just everyone was young? Uh, Probably because I didn't get enough attention. No, I mean, what was the fraught nature of our, not you? The fraught nature was, uh, it was a a difficult birth. Right. And I was at sea. It was Mm -hmm. really my first musical. And luckily, the assistant director came to my assistance. It was, interestingly, uh, it was uh, Howard Ashman, his assistant. uh, Her name's Connie Grappo. And I called her. I knew I was in trouble. I was on, like, the cusp. They didn't know what to do with me. It was, like, about a week before we started our first preview. And I called her, and little did I know that Howard Ashman said to her, I want you to work with him. The same day he said, I want you to work with Lee privately, I called her. Mm. And... uh, We've been married for 35 years. <laughs> so um, the, she but, took that direction very, she was like, all right, I'll work <laughs> okay, with it. Okay, I'm talking about taking one for the show. <laughs> it's a real calling. So it wasn't fun. It was fun doing. Right. Yeah. But it was not fun rehearsing, and it was, I almost got into, yeah, I'm, I did, I did. You got I'm into not, it. I almost got into a fist fight with the guy that played Mr. Mushnick. <laughs> he never liked me. May he rest in peace. First, we had a, a gentleman named Michael Vale. He was the uh-huh. original Mr. Mushnick, and mm-hmm. he was the Dunkin' Donuts guy from way oh, back. Yeah. Oh, time to make the donuts? That's right. That was wow. Michael Vale. Who and wouldn't first, like that guy? He yeah. was great. And I didn't even he know was he was great. an actor that He way. was an actor. Yeah. And, uh, I think he was a real donut guy. He he had some other campaign. I mean, he, he did not need to do the Was job. he the donut guy then or after? Then. He, okay, during, so I was in the midst of it. During. Yeah. And he didn't want to do it when we moved 
to the Orpheum. So a, a new gentleman came on. May he rest in peace. His name was High Anzel. And Jaime came in. Mm-hmm. He was the only one that was new. And he was assigned by, uh, Howard assigned Connie Grappo, who was then, I was living with her because it was several months after we had closed, and uh, to, to work with him, to put him into the show. And the first thing he said to her, I don't work with women. And <laughs> that did not help his case. No. Times and, they were changing. He also, I never laughed at his jokes. And I do this warm up. I still do it. And people tell me to shut up sometimes. Oh, I guess we're not where that, that comes now, from. <laughs> well, that yeah, answers that that's question. In the movie. And, that's in um, no pay nudity. I have been doing it for years. I had a, I had a, my first voice teacher in New York. He had me do that for an hour. That's all I do. I, 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 I don't know what the hell he was teaching. He was teaching me was, to do that. Anyhow, Jaime, he told me to shut up one time. Quit doing that. And I said, it's not half hour yet. And he said, you're a little prick. And we we came this close. Wow. My fingers are very close to each other. But generally, I'm... Interesting. I'm... Uh, cowardly, and I don't throw my weight around, and I grumble probably at home, but I'm not a troublemaker. I really keep my mouth shut. So your recipe for success is to marry the assistant director. Is that the advice you would give a young actor when possible? Always. Whenever I did a show, and then it ended with Connie, I would... would I would get involved with with like the assistant director, the choreographer, because I wanted to know the inside dirt. Interesting. You're sure. here. With Connie, it wasn't that. It was Connie. I needed help, but it's worked out. All you aspiring actors out there, Chris, difference where you're really needing wrong. help and inside dirt. It, Chris, that seems like it's you, the same thing. Why haven't you been dating people in a position of power on the shows you've been on? I mean, you don't, even, you don't know that I haven't. I mean, sure, it didn't work out quite as well, you know. And Connie's a director as well, right? Not anymore. But well, she, she was a theater director. She was a theater director. When Howard stopped directing Little Shop, he directed the uh, Off-Broadway and Los Angeles and London and the national tour. And then he handed it over to Connie, and she did the national premieres in huh. Australia and South Africa and uh, Canada mm-hmm. and maintained, uh, like, the national tour. And then she went to Yale Drama School, part Matt, of our saga. Is that. that a well-known? <laughs> and uh, she directed for several years regionally and off-Broadway and ran a theater company. And then about seven or eight years ago, she started painting, and that's what she does. Fantastic. No more show business for her. She's very happy. That's fantastic. Man, I can understand it. Oh, uh, and she did, there was an out-of-town I don't know if you remember, about 12 years ago, Little Shop premiered on Broadway Mm -hmm. with Hunter Foster. Oh, right. And Connie directed that out of town uh, in Florida, which I played Mr. Mushnick in that one. And that got very messy. I think that was the beginning. Was that the sort of Uh, the end of it? I I think, well, she didn't, it took years to stop. But uh, that was like, in my mind, big time show business. Yeah. Yeah. Really never had any interest. She liked working off-Broadway and out of town. Right. And Little Shop is coming back. I see Little Shop posting. is coming back. You're you're promoting, you're posting, you're still Little in the Little Shop family. Little Shop is coming back off-Broadway. Mm-hmm. I played the role in Florida, and I played Mr. Mushnick. We did it at the Kennedy Center last year, which was really fun. And they inquired about my interest and availability, and I really? was let, yeah. You said no. Well, I was kind of interested, but we're going to India and Nepal, and it would have cut into that. Mm-hmm. I would have had to, I said, I, I, maybe I'll do it, but I need these two weeks off to go to India and Nepal, because that's pretty, 
Yeah. That's untouchable. Right. Yeah. Unless Absolutely. something like amazing comes, like a, if I got like a... Like, like a, this, for example. Ser- like you this. cancel the trip to be <laughs> on this the podcast. Day. And I said, I'm not really available. Good for so you. They've, they've moved on. Okay. Now I have to say that's probably part of the secret of success and longevity. I don't know if you had that skill your whole life. Saying to, no? Saying no. I usually don't say no. Yeah. But this, this India thing, I've been wanting to go to India for... This is really just too, it's sacred. Just the way that you were telling that story, I could tell that the answer was that, you know, as an actor as well, until you get a certain amount of success, success, which, you know, I feel you have looking at this very impressive career, but that, as I've said before, like every job feels like it could be your last. And to carve out anything that feels like a real life feels almost like you're putting that at risk. Believe me, it's it, a feels sign of that way. it feels <laughs> yeah. that way. I, I'm going to be like very candid here. I don't work that much anymore, certainly not as much as I want to. And when something comes along, even though I've done it before, yeah. it's tempting because I, I still love to work. If I'd never done Little Shop before, I may have thought of it different, but I played the role twice. And mm-hmm. it's I, I like to do things now because... They have some meat on the mm-hmm. bone, and this is a nice roll, but I'm not giving up this trip. Yeah. That's great. Good for you. Um, the reason we wanted to have you on was to talk about your movie, No Pay Nudity, which, diving into your career and your life, it seems plucked from the headlines of your own experience. How much of the movie is drawn from your experience, and how much is drawn from the screenwriter's experience? Okay. And give us a give us a precis. Is that the word, Chris? Sure. Uh, precis? I'll look it up. Isn't precis as like a quick synopsis? Uh, P-R-E-C, a I'm summary or be, abstract of see? a text or speech. Okay. There you go. I'll try to be, I'll try a to pressy. be quick. I believe I was certainly, uh, I have lulls all the time. Mm-hmm. I had a lull. <clears throat> I came up with a story with the idea of being in it. L- let me back up. I used to walk into the equity lounge where yeah. a lot of the movie takes place. The equity lounge doesn't really exist the way it does in the film. The equity lounge is now called the audition center. But mm. for years, up until about six years ago, five years ago, it was this place where actors hung out. I used to go there because uh, I'd either I'd been I live in Brooklyn and I'd go there for literally to take a leak. Yeah, it's like a way station. It's like a truck stop for actors. That's right. I didn't need to go there to audition because I have an agent, but but they had open calls there often. So I went there, and then there was a period of maybe 12, 15 years where I hadn't been there, and I went back, and the same people, not same type of people, the exact same people were sitting in the lounge. Literally for real. Yes, literally. (laughs) A woman with a dog and a guy with a mustache. I mean, they were the same people because I... I'd, I'd like, there'd be people that I'd hook in on and I'd go, they're here all the time. They live here. Yeah. So I said, this is a cool idea. This might be a movie. It's a little inside mm-hmm. but what the hell? So I wrote this treatment and I brought it to Ethan Sandler, who I had met at Williamstown many years ago. Him and his wife, uh, not, she wasn't his wife then, Catherine Hahn. And I said, Ethan, let's write this together. We'll direct it, co-direct it, and I'm going to be in it. I want to play the lead. So we wrote it together. And then I don't know how much time passed, maybe two years, and we had lunch one day to talk about the idea of directing it, if we could ever get it made. And I went to myself, this isn't going to work out, two of us directing it. It just Mm -hmm. didn't feel right. And I said, Ethan, you're a writer. You're going to get all the screen credit. I'm going to direct it. And by that time, I may have decided that I wouldn't 
if I'm going to direct it, I couldn't possibly also be the lead. And uh, I just it didn't feel right. All right, cut to I went and did uh, The Iceman Cometh in Chicago six, seven years ago. And Nathan Lane was playing the lead. And all we did in Chicago, I thought I was going to see Chicago and spend my time <laughs> going out every day and exploring Chicago. All I did was rest because the show's five hours yeah. long. And I, I, I opened my computer and there was uh, no, pay. it was actually called Lounge Act at the time. Mm. And I opened it up and I kind of polished it. And uh, I'm going to back up just a little. It was originally written for an actor, the role that Nathan ended up playing. Uh, his name was Maury Chaikin. You guys oh, yeah. know Maury oh, sure. Chaikin? It was written for Maury. Maury and I did our first play together in oh, New wow. York, but Maury had passed away. Mm -hmm. And I said to Nathan, "Would you would you read this? I, if I if I could get this done, I would love for you to." Did you know Nathan before this? I've known Nathan. I knew Nathan before I even moved here. I met him. Okay. I was at college in Cincinnati. There was a young lady that w was at uh, CCM who I had this huge crush on. She left school early. She moved to New York. I chased her here, and she was doing a review called Jurors. It jurors. Jurors. J E R Z. Oh, they'd go to so high schools. Jersey. They'd go to high schools. So and my jurors. jurors musical is still something I could work on. Yeah, Jurors. I've been working I, on that I for twenty years. I'll get you those notes really soon. <laughs> okay, it's thank great. You. It's really solid. There's just a few. <laughs> okay, so she's working on she's jurors. working on Jersey. And she Jersey? Says, is, is it a Jersey the musical? It's they did sketches and songs about the history of New Jersey, and oh. they play at New Jersey Chris, high this schools. Is right up Chris's alley. I was say, why why did they not revive this? Are you from Jersey? Are you from Jersey? Yeah, yeah. Oh, you'd you'd have loved it. You'd have loved it. <laughs> If you were the right Very age, you could have seen it. She said, there's this guy in it. He's like 17. His name's Joe Lane. He's amazing. And I went to see her do it. And there was this amazing wow. young man. It was Nathan. Yeah. So I met Nathan in 1972. Wow. How many years ago is that? 39? Something. Uh, 70, 37 <laughs> years ago. Uh, you say so. Math is not my strong suit, Lee. That's a... That's already been established on the pod. a little bit more than No, that. no. 47 <laughs> years ago. I met Nathan Chris 47. And Nathan has over the years thrown. I read that he was doing The Iceman Cometh, and I called him up, and I said, I've always wanted to do it. He said, what role do you want to play? And like, like a schmuck, <laughs> I said, I want to play this one character. Well, the, the character I played, uh, he was asleep for uh, four hours and 40 minutes. Smart choice. Of five hours. <laughs> so what do you mean you had to rest in Chicago? You do all your resting? Yeah, well, you had plenty I time. actually did fall asleep every show for 15 minutes. <laughs> Anyhow, Nathan, I thought, eh, he'll read it someday. Literally, he read it that day. This is great. I said, wow, Nathan likes it. Maybe maybe I can really get this done. And he's reading what is then a Maury Shaken role. It's not yes, Nathan Lane. I told him. I told him it was written for Maury. Yep. He was not in, he, he, he thought it was a, a great role. Yep. Yeah. And he's great in it. And then I did a... Kickstarter mm -hmm. did not raise the money, which I know because Chris I donated to the Kickstarter oh, and I had the email saying like, "Thank you." How much were you trying to raise? We were trying to raise four fifty. We Ooh. raised two seventy. Well, that's it pretty was good. Very right? ambitious. That's yeah. pretty good. Well, when we knew we weren't going to make it, uh, the woman that was helping me run it, her husband, at the last minute, he said he was going to give fifty, but he knew he didn't have to because we weren't going to get it. <laughs> Gee, so thanks, if I had gotten that, I'd be like, Let's sure, say, yeah. We raised two twenty. Could you have that. made it for two sixty? No.
So how, how much did you end up making it for? We made it for $650,000. The Kickstarter was valuable because I met some people mm -hmm. on the Kickstarter that introduced me to the people that ended up being the main financiers. Got it. And we made it. And uh, they wanted a name, of course. We needed a name. Sure. There were some people that uh, at one point... Alfred Molina was interested, but his wife became ill. Mm -hmm. And I met with Kevin Klein, who was like vacillating. Then I got a list of people. This and is for the the more shaken role. Oh no, no for, the, for, for the, the role for the, for the, lead. Okay. For the lead. For the lead. And Gabriel's name was on it, and uh, we got it to Gabriel, who was a little unlikely because he's he's. Irish. I was going to say, when I hear the name Lester Rosenthal, yeah. Gabriel Byrne is the first actor that... Uh... And I think you accept it. I mean, I uh, peop, I accept it. Sure. I just, you just accept it. That's why he's carrying the dog in the first scene, because basically after that, you're on his side. You're on his... Right. That's your, I didn't even think And then that. when the dog dies. Whose dog was that? That was a showbiz dog. You really that, have to get that, a showbiz dog. You have to get like a dog trainer. The very first like a, shot of the film. Yes. When, when we're walking. coming up 45th Street and he crosses mm -hmm. on 8th Avenue. I have to say, that's the one shot that I, like, devised. I have yes. to say, mm -hmm. that I take And it must have been very it. early in the morning. It was supposed to be at f five in the morning, yeah. okay? And we were waiting for the dog, and the dog wasn't there at five. <laughs> Children and dogs, this man, was never were worse. Somewhere upstate, <laughs> the dog wasn't and there. she was not there, and we're calling her. Gabriel Byrne said, is there, I'll ready get, to go. I'll the get dog, there the as there. soon as I can. The zebra got loose. <laughs> she had a zebra on her, whatever her menagerie, I love and show it business. got loose. And she didn't get there till seven thirty, and I wow. was not happy Ooh. because it changed. It was supposed to be much. Was darker. this your yeah, first day, day, or were you shooting no, in sequence no, or no? No, okay. it was the first nine days we shot in the facsimile of the lounge. Uh -huh. Oh, so that wasn't in the lounge. Oh, wow. No, the lounge didn't no longer existed. Oh, really? Well, uh, and like we sit rebuilt it literally in three days. We found a location down on Wall Street. Oh, wow. I thought it, it was a location because it feels very real. You know, they I recently had a, I had such redid a the Actors' Equity building. That's right. And this looked so modern. I was like, oh, they must have just shot it in the modern. No, uh, the I had this wonderful Maki Takanuchi. She was a wonderful wow. production designer. The posters yeah. on the wall are great. Yes. The <laughs> decor, the chairs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was amazing. Kevin Klein would have been did. good in the Boyd Gaines role. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love Boyd Gaines. Yes. And I thought Boyd Gaines, I thought they were all great. I auditioned two people because I didn't know any young uh, Asian men. There's oh, and it's Justin, class. he was in Amanda's show at Justin the Justin Leong. Yeah. Justin Leong. And the African-American young man. He's uh, great. He's on he, Elementary. He's kind of blown yes. up since then. Yes. And everybody else was friends. A few people I'd offered it to, but they couldn't do it, but I got the older man that's kind of the, the gatekeeper. Yes. Uh, J.R. Horn. He's who great. Who has since passed away. He, uh, he died shortly after we shot it. Oh, my. He was perfect. He was perfect. But he was like my fourth choice. And Joe Grafazzi was not supposed to do it. It was supposed Love to Joe be Grifazzi. Peter Maloney. But he couldn't do it. So I got Joe. But I know a lot of people because I'm old. <laughs> people like the script and... Yeah, well, there's a lot of good it. parts for actors, of course. And you it. could tell, going back to when you talked about how much Nathan Lane loved it when reading it, you can tell in his performance how much he identifies with that, or how much, how much he identifies with the themes of it, how much he loves that role. There is so much comedy, but also real feeling mm -hmm. that he invests it with that's coming from a very real place for him. And uh, it's it's wonderful. And he does a, an amazing job. I, I, I'm, I'm really proud of it. Uh, it was really fun to shoot. Not without its tensions, sure. but never with the actors, ever. And then post-production, it just went to, sh to shit. 
It just went to hell. Really? Why? And, and editing, there were problems with editing, and they didn't like the editing. And Who's they? The, the, money? the money people. The money people, I see. And yeah. they wanted me to do a couple things. There's a scene where Nathan is kibitzing with the kid and explaining mm-hmm. to him yes. when he beat up. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's based loosely. Apparently, Charles Durning hit somebody very early in his career and didn't work oh. for several years. And then Joe Papp hired him to work at the public. Wow. And wow. I'd always love that story because I love Charlie Durning. And they wanted me to chop that up and Oh, no, that's a great moment. you got to have that moment. Oh, yeah. And there's a couple things... I say to people, if, if there's anything that you like don't like, it, it wasn't my idea. <laughs> uh, like, there's a shot. Uh, he goes, am I going to Cincinnati? And then I wanted the next shot to be him sitting in the theater. But there's a shot of a plane. That drove you crazy. That drove me a little crazy. <laughs> so those kind of things. And I went a little bunker mentality. Of course. And it became It became tense. us versus them. But we got it done. Sure. And we got a distributor. Monterey Media, mm-hmm. who just last week, the, the gentleman that owned Monterey Media, I found out he passed away and they sold it to somebody else. And I had a conversation with them and they're going to try to revitalize sure. it again with DVD. So it's out there. We didn't make our money mm-hmm. back, but I am happy to say there's a thing called a waterfall, the order yes. in which you pay people back. And mm-hmm. the first thing that I was able to do, and it's the only thing I've been able to do so far, is to pay my actors their residuals. I'm really happy about that. Yeah. Good for you. Well, let's play a clip. Okay. Chris, what do you think is a good introductory clip for the movie? We were talking about the Nathan Lane story. That's a good one to start with because you also get so much about his personality. Nathan contributed some of the dialogue. He kind of rewrote this. And it- Listen to this. Mid-twenties, any ethnicity, must be strong improviser, must be able to play the guitar, no pay, nudity required. I mean, come on now. <laughs> oh, God. Yes, I remember it well. I'm not saying I won't go to the audition. I will. It's just You absolutely will not, young man. <sighs> Listen to me. No matter what color you are, they will all shit on you. They will do whatever they can to reinforce the idea that you are A, worthless, B, powerless, and C, a fucking worthless piece of shit without power. But they are wrong. You know how much power you have? None? A ton. They can't make you do shit. Starve first. Are you any good, kid? I hope so. All right. Then never do that shit. Ever. Seriously, man. Why are you always here? It's a long story. I ain't going nowhere. I made a very strong choice. One momentous night. Perhaps too strong. And I've been here ever since. Andrea. Yeah. Good morning. Good morning, Andrea. Go on, man. Please. Very well. I was in a play 22 years ago. I know, you were too. Right. Anyway, I was in this splendid play in which I was transcendent. But my co-star was tragically miscast. And worse, he was a lazy prick. Terry Proctor, remember him? (laughs) You fucked him. Terry Proctor was this lazy, miscast prick's name. And he looked like this. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Anyway, he was infuriatingly lazy. Did I mention that? And he consistently fucked up this one wonderful moment. 
where he was supposed to be polishing a pair of shoes. Well, I wax poetic about our recently deceased father. It was a very simple task. And he fucked it up every night. No matter how hard we worked, he wouldn't change, he wouldn't listen to our director, to me. I really tried to help him, but he was a fucker. And on opening night, he fucked it up again. And during the curtain call, he came out and started waving to someone in the audience, grinning wildly. And something in me snapped, and I punched him in his stupid fucking face. Bam! And the audience gasped, and he fell to the stage. And then he tried to get up, and I hit him again. Bam! And then the other actors had to pull me away. And the curtain came down, and he brought me up on charges, and it made the papers. And it was a very bad thing. Laziness. I cannot abide laziness. It's what we do requires rigor, concentration, total dedication. Nothing less. Remember that. Last time I worked. Damn. What makes Nathan Lane so fucking good? Can you quantify why, in a movie populated by other people who are very good at acting, Nathan Lane has something extra and additional to me when I watch him? I don't think it can be. But it's a thing. It's a thing, and I don't think it can be. Uh, described. Is it skill? Is it innate personality? I think it's innate. I think it's innate. I mean, I think it's certainly, it doesn't come from just, he works on it, Mm -hmm. but it's just ease. He's a very complicated man. I know him a long time. I just think he just has the gift, Mm -hmm. the gift that's inexplicable. And yet, at the same time, it's not something totally raw. As as you said, I'm sure he works on it. Mm -hmm. And this is one of the reasons why I like this scene so much, besides the whole punching out thing. The idea that acting takes rigor and concentration and that that it is something other than just standing there and either looking good or doing something. It's a profession that's looked down upon in a lot of ways, or at least not taken very seriously. So I think that the— Only by directors. <laughs> there are actors and the that general I've worked public. with over the years that want that remind you how hard they've worked, yeah. or talked about it, or right. uh, show you while they're doing it how mm-hmm. hard they work. When I was younger, I remember we'd get high and talk about acting and technique, mm-hmm. and I've done that for years. <laughs> but after but you do not, it enough, it gets ingrained. Like it becomes a comfortable thing. It's like you but don't Nathan need to talk about it. Nathan is not somebody that I have ever had that conversation, mm. even yeah. just never occurred to me. I take it for granted with him. And what's Nathan's look based on here? Nathan's look is based on, even though I've never watched an episode, is his name George Martin? <laughs> George Martin? R. R. Martin? Oh, yes, George, it's R. R. George R. Martin. I knew it. Chris called it. <laughs> yeah, George Martin. Chris called it. Uh, that's, I just <laughs> like the way the guy looked, and I said, let's dress him like that. You know, uh, I had never seen him. I didn't know too much about it, and I'll try to make this quick. I've got a two-hour version of this story, but <laughs> sister of mine who really likes autographed books, she's like, can you do me a favor? George R. R. Martin's going to do a signing of a, can you go? And I was like, okay, it'll take mm-hmm. five minutes, whatever. And I was 
happened to be going by the Barnes and Noble and saw that there was like a huge line. And I was like, oh gosh, turns out I had to get in line. I ended up being there all day, not knowing who this guy was in order to finally get this autograph. This is pre-GOT? This is in the midst of season one. Okay. And so after, when he did his talk, he talked about it. He, he was very funny because he was like, we have some people that have only know it from the books. Some people who only know from the show, somebody who might be partway through the show or partway through the book. So like, let's try to keep all questions spoiler free. So then the whole <laughs> Q&A was a nightmare because everybody I was trying to, yeah, not only could he, but nobody wanted to ask nobody an actual ask question. Anything. They're like, you know that guy who does it? And, the, and so a lot of that. But anyway, the, the whole Barnes & Noble on Union Square, multiple floors with people lined up all the way up. And then finally, when he was coming up, you hear from the third floor, you start hearing people chanting and screaming, the king of the north thing. And I go, oh my gosh, here's this guy, he's coming up. And then you see on the escalator, he's coming up and you hear the, <laughs> the sound of people vest. chanting. And then and up the comes cap. this friggin' like gumdrop <laughs> of a man in the Mork and Mindy uh, suspenders uh-huh. and that Greek fisherman's cap mm-hmm. and the beard and and mm-hmm. like Nathan Lane, Classic. the belt, like, yep. you know, a few inches above the belly. And I was like, this is <laughs> this is what all of these people are waiting for. And then he spoke and he was wonderful. He, I, don't, I haven't read his prose, so I don't know how good an actual writer he is, but certainly his ideas that he said he was incorporating in the way he talks about people and storytelling was beautiful. I don't watch the show. I just saw a picture of him, and I'd worked a couple times, and we got along great with Ann Roth, uh, the the costume designer, mm-hmm. and she agreed to be the costume uh-huh. designer on the film, which was like amazing. And then the day I went to her office to start talking about designs, she said, I'm handing this over to one of my associates in the office. But she did dress Nathan and Gabriel. Mm -hmm. Uh And uh, they agreed, and I was involved in the fat suit. (laughs) But the fat suit was expensive. Nathan's in a fat suit. And I was told he paid for it, and then we'd pay him back. But wow, it never, we never did, and he... But he's in a fat suit, but he's based on that guy. Yeah. Just because I saw a picture of him. I love that you're confident enough to go with the choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you're just like, that's what he looks yeah. like. And, and I, it is. Well, it's I an bought, image-based medium. Yeah. I'm not sure that's the hat he's wearing, but I bought a Greek fisherman cap like a year before we even <laughs> had the money. I just had it ready. Just knowing, right. And As when, a totem. And I think I gave it to him, but I don't think that's the hat he's wearing. Right. Well, he's great in it. Full cast and crew is brought to you by Out of Jack's Mind, a new comedy short video series from Jack Plotnick, co-writer and director of the Sony Pictures feature film Space Station 76, and current recurring guest on Grace and Frankie and Z Nation. Out of Jack's Mind, like and follow at Chuckler Comedy on Facebook or Chuckler.com. Chuckler, original comedy delivered daily. We do a little thing called alternative casting. Put that one back. And Chris had a couple interesting notes from this movie. You can tell us whether these are true or not. I had read there was an article in The Hollywood Reporter when you were talking about the Kickstarter. And I think at that time, this is before Gabriel Byrne. And I think you were saying that Ted Levine? Ted Levine. I don't even remember how it happened. Ted Levine. Ted Levine for listeners. From Silence of the Lambs. From Silence of the Lambs. Among other things, but that's... You can listen to our Silence of the Lambs episode wherever you get podcasts. I listened to that one. Oh, that's the one I listened to, and I love that's the one he listened to. Well, it's it's the top of the form. Sure, you get a lot of the same 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 stuff. Amanda Charlton is the girl. I get it. um, So wait, Ted Levine? Did you know Ted? Oh, I didn't know him, and I don't remember why I reached out to him. (laughs) But he did you see the Kickstarter video? 
We did a video, a really funny video, because Ted is... He's in the video? The video is Ted. I did Nathan remotely, and it doesn't really mm -hmm. integrate mm -hmm. well. I had Laurie Metcalf yes. in the film. Great. But she had to drop out. But I got Franny Conroy. And she would have been Francis Conroy. She would have been Franny Conroy. Who's great. The idea was they were doing the pitch to raise money for the Kickstarter. So Ted was going to be the Gabriel, Gabriel. Byrne character. Yeah. And Ted was tricky. Really? I didn't know him. I don't remember why I asked him to do it, but he agreed to do it. And then people said to me, he's, he's a great actor, but you're lucky because he's not very funny. Uh, so I- So why would you be lucky? Because there's a couple times where Gabriel's funny. Yeah, but so why are you lucky if to, oh, you mean you're lucky that he ended up not doing it? Right. Yes. Oh, I see what you're saying, yeah. Even though I'm sure he would have been great, if you're listening to this, Ted, you'd have been great. Um, Look, if you made Silence of the Lambs, you'd be a little weighted down He's for the rest scary. of your life. Certain roles stick with you. But he was, he was, uh, he, he, he was, he was scary. But you know, interestingly, Jodie Foster tells the story that of all the people on the set when they were making the movie, he was the kindest and warmest to her as she was sort of adrift on this crazy set. And he was nothing at all like his character, and he would be humorous and I amusing. I wish I'd have got to know him. Yeah. I, we did that one day, and, and I think it was so vague what we were doing right. for the video that mm -hmm. everybody was a little uh, off their feed. Aren't but those they were the most good. uncomfortable moments when you kind of get the sense as someone trying to marshal everything together that there's a bit of a collective dis-ease or unease that's beginning to emanate from your own project and you're wondering if this is it? Is it going to yeah. now? Is it going to stay like this? Can is I it going to fall ship? apart or is it going to come together? It was my first foray in directing actors. Wow. And I, my, my confidence was a little shaky. Well, I, I did <laughs> want to ask, because like, that's a... To, Start with a feature film. That's pretty ambitious. <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe some shorts, Lee, or I'd but you had never done a short, short, never directed a play. Are you familiar with the Fifty Second Street Project? Yeah, sure. I've worked at the Fifty Second Street Project, and that's all I ever directed. So the Fifty Second Street Project, for the listeners, is a project whereby incredibly talented Broadway actors, directors, and writers come together and work with underprivileged children mm -hmm. to bring their stories to mm -hmm. light. The it's kids an write the plays, program. and adult actors yes. do the plays. Just, I had a feeling. I could do it. I'd been on enough film sure. sets. Yeah. And I surrounded myself with, with the exception of a few people that were unbelievably skilled. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it worked out. And on, on top of that, you know, it's For the a story most that obviously speaks to you, like you had said. And again, right. in this same story, I came up with the story of no pay nudity during a dark period four or five years ago. I think it's safe to say I was struggling with not only not working very much, but coming to grips that certain dreams I had were not likely to come to fruition, and my definition of success as an actor had to be reassessed. Da -da -da. In the last few years, I've made peace with a lot of these issues, but I'm still an actor who wants to work and still find myself with certain fantasies of my youthful dreams I had as a young actor being fulfilled. I found that a very interesting quote because, you know, as I said before, I, you know, I think it's a, you have an enviable career and to think that there's still some dissatisfaction. But all of these things, the love of acting, but frustration with the career elements, there's so much in there that is so true to you that that comes out. And I would think that any director is going to do a great job if they know and care about what they're saying. And it shines through in like in, in I appreciate every that. moment of the film. I did. It was important to me, if I'm going to do it for the first time, to do it about something that I really know. Yeah. Right. And I have another project that I, that I would love to make. It's about when I was 15. I mean, I know it as well as I know this. It's another semi-autobiographical film. So I'm not going to direct... Uh, I have no uh, 
aspirations to direct the Game next of Star Thrones. Wars. Although um, if they offered it to you, Lee, you'd probably have to take it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you wouldn't have to muck uh, around I mean, with they go Kickstarter after that. that. might come up. But the struggles about the career that... Never goes away. Never goes away. But along the same lines, the beginning of the scene that we just played with what Nathan's character is saying about having no power and this perception mm -hmm. that actors have of themselves of having no power, a perception which, as you said, directors, but also the rest of the world, really does go out of its way to <laughs> reinforce. You know, you didn't make a fantasy. Like, it's, it's not uh, Gimlet-eyed about the profession, but it's it's able to be loving in that way and recognize how frustrating that is while still acknowledging the amount of rigor that it takes. I look at that scene though and I go, he's telling a kid at the beginning <laughs> of his career not to audition for something. <laughs> I look at it, I go, is that? Is that a good message? Well, he's well, telling him to stay pure to something, yeah, to well, not do to, shit, because you're not, not shit. To not assume that you, you have do have power. It, well, yeah, not can. to assume it. I think that to have some amount of standard for yourself, I think it is. And that's why, I, I mean, I love the title. I think it's such a funny and great title. But the idea of like the kid reads the thing, he's like, oh, this part speaks to me. I'll do it for no pay and I'll show my dick. That's very different than I'm just going to go to every audition mm -hmm. because I need to do something. And it's that desperation because it's, it's about valuing yourself and valuing the art. And that's because I've already talked too much. But one more thing that I thought was a wonderful uh, observation that's made in here is in Herschel's voiceover, specifically talking about um, Gabriel Byrne's character is it Len, right? Is it? Uh, it's. Uh, or does he go see if him? anyone can remember her. Oh character. man, <laughs> Lester, Lester. <laughs> but he goes Lawrence. Lester, Les. Lawrence, Lester. Lawrence. Yes. Okay. So Lester's uh, time in L.A. And he's uh -huh. talking specifically mm. about him getting written off the soap opera yes. and then thinking about it as a career and sort of the seed of bitterness that becomes planted at that point. It was when they killed him off from that fucking soap opera that things went kaput. It was all going well up to then, and then they killed him off and never told him why. He was out of work, and that made him scared. Why did they kill me off? Why? Why? And then he worked less. And then, and only then, he started using the word career. Career. My career. A bad sign. That makes him fear, therefore he works less, which of course then feeds on itself in such a way that we then have this borderline embittered guy at the beginning who becomes super embittered by the time his friend, in quotes, gets apart. Well, and, I think uh, they are friends. To me, they're friends. I guess I only put it in quotes because Lester's very ungenerous throughout the whole thing. And I think the whole arc of the movie is about his ability yes. to become more generous by losing that yes. pit of bitterness in the center. A great cameo from Loudon Wainwright III, mm -hmm. who I thought did such a great job of embodying the savior for Lester, but then at the end kind of also, not that he puts the knife in the back, but basically he has a stage reading and it's a great opportunity for Lester and Lester does pretty well. But his co-star does even better. And then in a phone call, which I think is a great device, he is still Lester's buddy, but he's delivering the news that they want a name. Like you said, the financial backers of the movie themselves wanted a name. Right. And he's kind of like, yeah, man, fuck them. You know, maybe we'll, maybe we'll change their mind. Like he's going on to the next stage of success. Lester's getting left behind. And he's kind of blindly or willfully unaware of what he's doing to Lester in the moment. Yeah. Loudon Wainwright, I read his book recently. I don't know if you read the book that he no, wrote. No, I didn't know um, he wrote a book. 
He's got a very self-lacerating tone. Like, he is not putting himself up on a pedestal at all. His book tells a lot of stories against I'm himself that are not surprised ho- hilariously <laughs> wounding and sad. And he's someone who's pretty honest about having lived a life in pursuit of fame and success and all the cash and prizes that go with that at the expense of the other aspects of life. And he did a great turn in this movie with, yeah. I think, a lot of that stuff going on inside of him. I had called him very early. I know him Peripherally, he's close friends with my old, old, old friend Daniel Stern, the actor, and I wanted him to do the soundtrack. Interesting. Yeah. And then I changed my mind. Like there'd be songs with words and stuff? Uh, Maybe. A few. Okay. I had a composer, mm-hmm. and I also had any song in the film, my, my main financier. Uh, owned a record label up until about six months ago. He he just sold it. It was called Razor and Tie. Sure. You know Razor and Tie? And uh, Kids Bop, he owned that. Wow. Uh, Cliff Chenfeld. And so when you own Kids Bop, you can have your boutique indie Razor yeah. and Tie label to do all the bands you really are interested yeah, in. Yeah, and, and you can finance... You can finance a movie. This and movie is... Uh, more power to him. A couple of his artists are... So are, he just sold the company. That means he can finance your next film. He's not going to finance my next film. Well, don't say never. I would... I No, I can't. It's a Ramona Maybe when he hears this, he'll think, that, no, he, you know, what he, a great time It's he all had about what a jerk spending he Spending $650,000. He, he, he turned out to be a mensch. He's a mensch. He is a mensch. And he lost money. But uh, yeah, but that's, that's what you do when his, you bring when you finance an independent feature. That's what you do when you invest in Broadway. I mean, for crying out loud, people, what do you want your money back? You got to be a part of a movie. That's the trade off. But loud over the years, we'd go see his shows like at the winery. And uh, I met him and, and I knew he acted and I wanted him to be in it. And the character is loosely, loosely based on Stephen Sondheim. Oh, you know, really? Interesting. Uh, he, he's not. Yeah. portraying him, but a very right. successful, well, the most successful. I was sure. <laughs> so loosely. And I had to tell Loudon. He's not uh, really an actor. N- not really, but he's he did a wonderful job. Acted. And I had to tell him, uh, just, you don't have to talk so loud. That was my, <laughs> uh, otherwise he was, he was, he was great. He probably didn't and, take that well though. <laughs> I know. Don't I tell wouldn't. me how loud to talk, <laughs> it's, Mr. I'll Director. I'll talk as loud as I need, thanks. Listen, as an aside, in this Loudon Wainwright third moment, Lee, you're the father of a daughter. I'm the father of a daughter. Loudon Wainwright has a brilliant song. Uh, I don't know the title of it, but it goes, That's My Daughter in the Water. Oh, yeah. That's my daughter in the water. Everything she owns, I bought her. Everything she owns. That's my daughter in the water. Everything she knows, I taught her. Everything she knows I thought you were going to mention Rufus is a tit man. Do you know that? I know that one. Yeah, that's a good one. That's, that one, that's <laughs> when Rufus, his son Rufus Wainwright, was an infant. He man. liked to nurse, And Chris. it's about yeah, no, I got nursing. <laughs> yeah, it's great. You get it's, the references? I'm getting all the, the double, the triple, all the entendres. Yeah. Who is the other, he's a that, we say that guy for those actors that you mm-hmm. recognize from 80s TV or 70s TV. The first show that Gabriel Byrne's character goes to where he's just so unimpressed at what's going on, which I mentioned to Chris the other day, the show scenes. The Joel act- Higgins. Joel Higgins. The acting scenes of the plays are so fucking brilliant. And so Chris knows from my heart as a, you know, spending 10 years going to Williamstown Theater Festival, you can see a lot of theater, which can they vary. They can't all can be vary. winners. 
they can they can't all be winners. <laughs> and just the quick little hits of the way you indicated what is going on on stage, I thought were fucking hilarious. Yeah. With someone that's like, no, no, no. Okay, dad. Like, just <laughs> right. so we've all seen that play. We've all spent two hours and 40 minutes in our seat at that play. Joel Higgins, where do I know him from? Well, the, Silver Spoons. That's what it was. He was the dad Silver, on Silver Spoons. And Joel, I've known him so for years, good to and we, see him. we the the crowd that I ran around with when I was in Los Angeles. I met Joel. He was part of that crowd. And then I did the Music Man with him at the Muni, and we and we've kept in touch all these years. He's great in that. He's and great in he it. He cuts and off Gabriel Byrne's attempt to. He's not really trying very hard to compliment the performance. Which is another great thing about this performance. You know, as you said, it's a little bit inside baseball. But a great thing about that scene is the delicate line of he wants to be compliment because you know, he can feel he's well, he knows he's to, supposed to. But he, he, he knows he's be. supposed to. But, but he, he, also, he also feels like there's some moral vanity of like, but I'm going to be yeah. obviously insincere. You were. You were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like there's. You were in it. <laughs> There's a lot going on in that interaction. And the very fact that the Joel that he picks up on it. Yes. Rosenthal. Oh. <laughs> hey, man. Hey, oh, pal. Oh. How the hell are you? How the hell you been? I'm Great. Good. Yeah. Hey, what you been up to? I mean, you know, this guy and I, we go back forever. We did Talk Talk in 1982. Yeah. Oh. Holy shit. Yeah, <laughs> oh, this is Daryl. Hey, yes. hey, um, I'm gonna go catch up with them. So, what have you been doing lately? Well, a little this, a little that, you know. We saw your show. You were wonderful. What courageous work. You saw my show? Yeah, we, we we saw it and it was just, wow, that play. I mean, it was, it's, and you. You, you were just oh, there, and you were breathing and breathing. Hey, and hey. it's great to see you. It's such a good. That's scene. a boss move. I just had an opportunity to make up for uh, bad post-show behavior. Uh, <laughs> literally, like twenty-five years later, I. I went to see one of the very first previews of Into the Woods, the very uh-huh. first production. My friend was in it. He played the baker, Chip Zion, and I mm-hmm. went backstage, and I, I didn't like it. I wasn't really listening, okay? I was not listening well in okay. those days. It was in rough shape, but that's beside the point. And I went, and I was— You were honest? Well, to him, I, I was honest— but James Lapine came to say mm-hmm. hello to him in his dressing room, the man that wrote it and directed it, and I couldn't work up anything. And James Lapine never saw me for anything. <laughs> He's never seen me for anything, and I attribute it to that. I've but learned I, you know, from this that. is my you're my spirit animal now. <laughs> this is what I struggle with. I find it so hard to be complimentary towards someone or something that did not earn the compliment, unless it's my child. Not that well, she has ever not trying to set a high bar, okay? Well, I did Into the Woods a little less than a month ago at Town Hall. Mm-hmm. We did a concert of it. It was to benefit some organization, the Cleveland Music Institute, and it was all Ohio actors. It was just one night only, and I was in it. Was James Lapine there? He came to see it. I heard. And <laughs> but you did not see him. I didn't him. see him. <laughs> 25 years later, I've learned to listen. And I was going mm-hmm. through the situation with uh, personal stuff, and mm-hmm. it's all about parents and their children. Mm-hmm. And I was really 
I was listening and mm. it really hit me really hard and I saw the value and how beautiful it is. Yeah. And I, I wrote a note, I said, I heard you were there. No, I didn't tell him I was, that I knew he was there. I just wrote him and I said, I got a chance to be in your musical, mm -hmm. uh, knowing that he was there, which is kind of pathetic. I, no, I think that's the right way to go. And I said, James, I just want you to know that uh, I saw it so many years ago and I just was not a good listener, but I got a chance to do it and it's, it's quite beautiful, but. Uh, I made up for for that. That's but I've it. learned. I understand you're going in for something this right after we record. Right after right? we leave yeah. here, James is seeing him downstairs. <laughs> That's not why I wrote him. But no, I, if it no. if it works that way, good. you know, so much the better. I well, do you think learned. James remembers this all these years later? That's no, the thing. No. I bet you. I bet you he, he might. Does it I was know, really man. pathetic the way I behaved. I think it's. I I I actually worked with young actors. I don't know. Once in a while, I give. They ask for a little bit of advice, and I say it is incumbent upon you with your colleagues. You got to find something positive mm -hmm. to say. You you have to. Yeah. You know what? We're in a we're in a fraternity. We have to support each other. Right. And I I regret that. I agree with you 100 percent because if if nothing else, even if the work you don't care for, somebody did, and somebody tried very hard. True. I mean, there certainly, their I've butt off. I will say I have seen performances or things that I was like, you'd not work on the, you know, or things that I thought, you know, 99.9% .9 of the time people are trying their hardest and they will look back later and be like, oh, boy, I wish I had done this. But let them come to that themselves. Going back to Lester's dealing with the dad from Silver Spoons, like, you don't get any points by, by thinking you are superior by shitting on the work that somebody just did that you yes. did not. And he's also, Lester is very obviously not listening in both of the plays that he goes to. No, he's- He's not like, even looking at the stage. No, he's- in, He's so in his own he's, head. Why aren't I in this? Yeah. <laughs> or something along those lines. Yeah, he's, he's uh, I don't admire him a lot of the film, but yeah. he grows a little. I it wanted grows. more. I guess this is a good compliment to the film. After he makes the turn, he goes to, where is he, Cincinnati? He's, Dayton. In, he's mm -hmm. in Dayton, Dayton, and he's the fool Dayton. in some Shakespeare. That's I don't know right. Shakespeare. What is um, that? Uh, King, Lear? Uh, King Lear? True West. Or rather, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's where he's helpful to his colleagues again. He's mm -hmm. having fun on stage. At that point in the movie, I was ready for more. I wanted him to go back and make peace with all that. I wanted to see that. Right. Did you shoot more of him post the turn? Because I would have watched another 20 minutes of his return to his life. We just didn't have an ending. I mean, I don't know if you noticed, but the ending is a montage. Not a good way to end the film. So you mean on talking about going the, into it? No, like, we didn't. You just, how are we going to end this? We'll figure that out later. <laughs> it was a, almost that. It, I, wow. I wanted to add, I, I actually went back and did a few shots uh like Lester with the dog and Lester mm -hmm. walking down the street with Donna Murphy and mm -hmm. clearly they're seeing each other. I wanted to write a scene with Lester and Boyd yeah. uh, having a, a rapprochement yep. and Boyd actually saying, they cut everything I did out of the movie. <laughs> so <laughs> that would have been brilliant. They, we didn't have the money, yeah. and nobody would go for it. Well, maybe but I wanted to do director's cut. I wanted to do what you just yeah. had suggested, and we—I I don't know why—we just kind of 
let the ending kind of like. No, it's the, there. You do it in the voice. Like, 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 the turn is definitely made, and yes. you do see that like everything that is in the montage does show that there's, yeah, you know, there's a, a growth and yes. change. Thank you for seeing And that. I had a funny <laughs> moment because I'm watching the scene between Lester and his daughter, and I'm thinking, oh, this is an interesting choice this actress is making. I mean, it's just, she's basically doing a Laurie Metcalf impersonation. And so then when I'm Googling, I'm like, oh, she's Laurie Metcalf's daughter. <laughs> A great, That's how I a learned. Great, That's a she yeah. really great. She's great. Zoe Perry. Zoe Perry and her dad's Jeff Perry. The actor Jeff Perry. You know Jeff Perry? You know him. I know him when I you see him. him. I was about to say, Jeff when you Perry. see him. He was on Scandal. I never watched it. But I you never know, saw he's that. a Steppenwolfer. They were all married to each other. Sure, yeah. all the Jeff Steppenwolfers. Jeff was married and oh, yeah, was Malkovich. Oh, it was all wait. just a big group. Whoa, stop down. Hold up. Jeff Perry was on the greatest Single season television series of all time. Oh, what was that? <laughs> oh, he's getting to it. I, I think. Uh, I hope. He was Mr. Katimsky on my so-called life. That Please guy, tell that, me you guys guy. watched. We watched it. One season, Chris. It was on only one season. One right? season. Was that J- 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 Jared, Jared Leto? Leto? Yeah. Jared Leto yeah. was Jordan Catalano. Right. And who did Jeff Perry play? He played Mr. Katimsky. He was a teacher, teacher at the school. He was brilliant in this series. And in the Columbo Cinematic Universe. Columbo Cinematic Universe. Ah, one more thing. He also was in a Columbo episode in 1989 called Murder, Smoke, and Shadows. Lee, if there's one thing I could complain about your career. No Columbo. You, no. How, please tell me you at least went out for a Columbo. Nope. You were in that world. Nope. Maybe we can transition to some TV work. I no. think it's You're in that world, the, the hour-long procedural. What years were Columbo on? Like 1902 until 2015. <laughs> no, I mean, uh, like James literally, they were on forever. And Peter Falk were very close. I think that's that they well. They were on poison. forever. Never went out for one. I'm pr- it's not like I remember every audition I've ever had because there's been you would remember a, a Columbo lot of them, audition. And most of them I didn't get, but I would remember Columbo, no. Full Cast and Crew is brought to you by Behemoth from Monkey Brain Comics. Behemoth is the dirty dozen meets the fly with little Spider-Man thrown in. Kids are turning into monsters and the government steps in to keep things quiet. Some are never heard from again, but others are forced on suicide missions on behalf of a world that hates them as part of Project Behemoth. Find it on monkeybraincomics.com or Comixology today. All right, let's talk a little bit about some of your TV work. Okie doke. I'm going to start by just playing a brief little clip here from the introduction. Since we've done National Lampoon's vacation on the pod, we're interested in the Lampoon. We've talked about it a bunch. And this, I was, I'd never heard of this, which I guess is one of their early television specials done for HBO. Well, what did I miss? Uh, I don't know. This big wooden spaceship or something landed, and then this beaver got out of it. Beaver? Yeah, beaver. A curious craft appears suddenly in the thermal inversion above a large American city. Its only passenger, a beaver from beyond the stars. Guided perhaps by the unseen paw of destiny, the beaver's craft is floated for eons from galaxy to galaxy, coming to rest at last on the fragile surface of this green, watery planet in a little-known corner of the universe. What is the beaver's mission? Why has he been brought here? We shall see. 
I love that song, by the way. Disco Beaver from Outer Space. It's song. one of your cast members wrote that song. Well, uh, I know. I think Alice I think it's Play- Alice Playton. She's gone now. Alice sang it. I didn't know she wrote it. And her husband, Josh White. Yes. Have you ever heard of the Joshua Light Show? Yes. No. If you'd go to the Fillmore East, which I never did because I wasn't living here then, but there was a light show and it was very... Psychedelic. Psychedelic light show. Okay. And Josh kind of invented it. I remember her from doing one of the Google voices. It, and you can probably even watch sure. uh, Joshua Light Show, the kind of the effect that it made. And you, like tie-dye and painty, and it's, it's hard to describe. But the way this happened, a Disco Beaver from Outer Space, I was in a show. I had done a few things here in New York, but I, I got cast in a show called The Present Tense. It was a sketch show, and we would improvise sketches, and then a playwright by the name of Jeffrey Sweet would rewrite them, and they would be the sketches. And also there were musical numbers. Some of the contributors were Alan Menken. This was like weekly it would change? No, or? no, no. Okay. It was a show. We did it for about okay. a month. Most interesting thing about it, at least to my mind, is that it was produced by a man named Roger Ailes. Yes. <laughs> Roger wanted to be my manager. Really? Roger and Hold I up, were. Hold Roger and this I This is were, pre-TV Roger Ailes. Yes. Here's what Roger was doing at that time. <laughs> I was at the Park Royal Pro- in 1977. It's on 73rd Street, right off the park, mm-hmm. Central Park West. It's right behind the Dakota. Okay. It's a big apartment building. And it's got like a had, theater in it? it? They did. <laughs> I'm sure they don't now. Nice amenity for the- I'm uh, sure now it's a two-bedroom. <laughs> So we we had done like a workshop of it. Roger was a producer. Roger was at that time primarily he did the Mike Douglas show for mm-hmm, years, right. and then he was working with politicians and make and helping them get media savvy. Mm-hmm. And one of the guys that worked for him was Steve Rosenfeld, and he directed the present tense, and Roger produced it, and mm. Roger wanted to be my manager, and we were we were we were friendly. Did you have a manager at the time he wanted to be your manager? I didn't manager? even have an agent. I got an agent by being in this show. This uh-huh. show. Wow. It put you on the it map. It put me on the map. I, 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 the review in the New York Times, I got six paragraphs. Six? Yes. I, I do remember <laughs> this. And I got an agent. And I got a lot wow. of attention. And Norman Lear came to see it. And Norman Lear flew me out west. And that's what I always wanted to do. And that's why I moved wow. out there. The show oh, closed wow. abruptly. I got an OB. I got a Drama Desk nomination. Yes. One of the things I did was sing that song that I had mentioned to you. Yep. Addressed as a Hasidic Jew. <laughs> singing this kind of pathetic song called Possum Pie. And I ha- did another scene where I went on that a blind date. That made Norman Lear stand up and pay attention. I, I, <laughs> I was on a blind date with a, a young woman, and I put a penis on my nose, and I had a little puppet, and I just went, hi, 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 hi. Sorry, this is how you got the part, or is this? No, <laughs> this is what I did this in is the, the show. Part <laughs> and why did I mention this? Because it got uh, you to L.A. It got me to started. L.A. So Norman Lear had a show. I don't even remember the name of it. He flew me out there to audition, and it didn't work out. It was but called I, All in the Family. <laughs> and it, yeah, he saw the Hasidic thing, and he was like, oh, it's got to be perfect for Oh, this is what happened. Oh, we were talking about the National Lampoon. So between yeah. the kind of off, off, off Broadway production mm-hmm. of the present tense and the final off Broadway, Roger Ailes was having trouble raising the money, and I, in the interim, auditioned for the National Lampoon show, which mm-hmm. had been performing down at the Village Gate for mm-hmm. years. They were doing a national tour. Right. And I got cast in the, Meatloaf was doing it, and I got cast in Meatloaf's part. He'd been doing it in New York, and I got cast in it. And that's where I met the people. Was he Meatloaf then? Yes. And I got cast in his part, and that's where I met Maddie Simmons, yeah. who ran National Lampoon. Right. Huh. And he 
liked me. And the present tense happened, and mm-hmm. I didn't do the National Lampoon National Tour. But he put me in Disco, Disco Beaver from Outer Space. And then eventually he put me in Delta House. Delta, Delta House, House right. right. So Delta House was the TV spinoff of Animal House. You play Einswein. Let's play a clip. It was so over the top that the network, after like the third episode, <laughs> came to, I think, Maddie, and they went... You gotta tone this kid down because it is so great. <laughs> well, my you gotta tone you would, down amongst all these people and overacting. Make fun of me for the. I was why I, I was kind of talking like this, <laughs> and I was acting like a. I, it was so nerdy that it was it was like a a Martian. It wasn't like human. <laughs> we had way too much fun. I'm sure. Swiney, flounder here needs a poli sci paper. By when? Uh, it's supposed to be tomorrow morning. Long, medium, or short. Uh, about 12 pages. Okay. I have here a 12-pager on the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk out of the University of Michigan, 1960. It's only been used twice and never at favor. Guaranteed a B plus. For 1750, I deliver it typed with your name on it. Great. We'll take it. Kent, it's party time. There you have it. And in many ways, the prototypical Lee Wilkoff guest player role, which you would then do on innumerable TV shows, always playing some variant of sort of the doctor, the scientist, the tech guy, the guy who's going to explain some very complicated, detailed business. The nerd. (laughs) I would most of the time walk into a room and drop some. (laughs) I did that in an episode of Heart to Heart. Loved Heart to Heart. And Robert Wagner took to me. I was only supposed to guest on that, and I think I ended up doing like 14 of them. And would have continued to do more, but Little Shop came along. Heart to before Little Shop? I was cast in it about 1980, 81-ish, and I left to do uh, Heart, Heart to Heart was uh, 1982. Yeah. You played Stanley Friesen that on Heart to Heart? That is exactly Did you call correct. him Bobby or Rob? RJ. Or- RJ. Oh, oh yes. you were in these RJ. RJ. Whenever, may she rest in peace, Natalie would come. Visit Natalie the would. set. He would say, your girlfriend's here. <laughs> and he would bring me to his dressing room. Wow. And we would sit across from each other. She and you was, would just- I would just You would just like, fall apart? No, I wouldn't even talk. I just wouldn't <laughs> know what to say. It was so, I'm with Natalie Wood. Was she nice? She, she was a doll. They were both nice. And she was they? very shy. He was, they were great. Stephanie Powers didn't like me. Really? Oh, she's so fun on the show. She didn't She didn't go for me. She probably wanted the comic relief to herself. Never could figure it out. Or she maybe she didn't, didn't like you because me. RJ liked you and I think that might have been you in the show. That might have yeah. been it. I mean, she was Sometimes never cruel to me. More. She just was not, he was so warm to me. Mm-hmm. And I loved, whenever I could, I would spend all my time like at the feet of Lionel Stander. Uh-huh. Because <laughs> he's Lionel Stander. I mean, the first actor to be blacklisted and... Mm-hmm. He just, just was just, I was like in heaven, just just being in his presence. Here's a little of your highlights. This is like, this is your life, Lee. Uh, this is a little highlights of you as Stanley Friesen on Heart to Heart. Uh, yes, Mr. Hart, uh, Stanley Friesen. Uh, you wanted to see me? Me, Stanley Friesen? Yes, I did. Stanley. Well, what can I do for you? You name it, you got it. Whatever you say, whatever it is, whatever you like. What would you like, Mr. Hart? I don't know why the theme from Cheers is going over this. Making your way in the world today takes everything you've got. I guess they weren't a big enough fan to let you have your lines in right. their comp reel that they made of all your moments. Wouldn't 
There you're getting some very good jazz tickets from. Yes, yeah, that's right. I'm going to jazz yeah. and uh, now you're dancing. Uh, this is uh, White Man's Overbite. Dancing with uh, Stephanie Powers. No, um, it was her first TV show. Uh, we'll figure out her name. Uh, Amy Madigan. Oh, Amy Madigan. Really? Her first, her first TV show. I can't tell whether putting the theme from Cheers over this is a compliment to you, uh, because they love you so much they just want to like see you but not hear you. I don't know. It's a very strange choice. So you're in L.A. at this time. I moved to L.A. Uh, right after the present tense closed. Mm -hmm. I had an uncle that lived in Ventura, and he had a deli in Oxnard. And I worked at the <laughs> deli by day, and I would drive into town. Wow. It was called Our Gang Deli, but it was called a deli, but it wasn't. Did they license that officially from the Little Rascals, or were you in violation as a deli Knowing of my uncle? Who I love. You know, don't say because the statute of limitations for <laughs> Might copyright be, infringement I don't is actually think, quite I don't, long. Spanky's very litigious. I don't, I don't think Uncle Pete. Uh, he licensed. He, did you use the R gang characters? No. I bet it had the font, though. I think it did. Yeah. <laughs> we just happened to have we a just, Spanky sandwich. No, there were. I don't think the sandwiches were named okay. after that. But, and, and there was like two Jews in, in Oxnard. So you it, and your uncle. That's right. <laughs> and his friend, the So you're auto driving dealer. 60 miles? I was driving 60 miles. To audition at night? And he'd give me the day off if I had an audition. Wow. And I gave myself six months. And nothing happened. And uh, right before I was going to leave, I did the gong show. Which, unfortunately, we couldn't find a clip of. No, no, that doesn't but, exist. Uh, <laughs> well, it does exist. I you made can, sure. You can. Not, not that episode. Well, I think you can buy oh, maybe a DVD of the complete gong show, but we didn't go that extra mile. What did you, you do offensive. on the gong show? Uh, you had a very offensive character, if I recall. I had done this character in the present tense. Elvis had just died, and we came up with, I play the banjo, and I had written this song apropos of nothing called Possum Pie. I'm it's a double entendre, I'm going to be Chris. the next Elvis. On the gong show? No, in, in oh, the present in the, tense. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, we've just lost Elvis, but <laughs> someone's here to take his, yeah. to fill his his Cut off shoes. his head, two and more so I Jew walks up and <laughs> sings on the banjo, Possum Pie. So I decided I'd sing it on the gong show. And it has some some uh, lyrics. Uh, Which today would perhaps be less than politically correct, let's say. It's, it, sure. And I got gonged. By? J.P. Morgan. Of course. Who made some even more double entendre-y response to my double entendre. Mm -hmm. And then the, I tell the story that it happened the next day, but I know it happened within the next week. I got offered, it can't happen, you can't do this anymore because of the nature of the business, because you have to go to the network and you have to sign things. I got offered two pilots on the same day. Wow. One of them was- That for, you had auditioned for previously. I had auditioned for okay. previously. One of them was for Norman Lear. It was called- Apple Pie, and I took the dramatic show called Web, W-E-B, based. Yes. The woman that produced it, uh, they said was the prototype for Faye Dunaway in Network. Her name was Lynn Bolin, and she was a network executive. Mm -hmm. It was her answer to the kind of horrible person that Faye Dunaway was in Network, but she was so antithetical. Antithetical? Mm -hmm. It was played by this actress named Pamela Bellwood, who I think went on to do Dynasty. And I played the head of research, research 
named Harvey Perlstein, based loosely, they claimed, on Fred Silverman, Ah. who was running NBC at the time. I don't know why he put it on the air, because my understanding was he loathed it. (laughs) He loathed it. I remember there was a big NBC party, and I went up and tried to speak to him, and it's probably the biggest blow-off I've ever gotten in my life. It's a nighttime soap opera about Pamela Bellwood, head of special events programming at Transatlantic Broadcasting Company, a TV network. Jack Kiley is the head of programming, Gus Dunlap, head of the news, Dan Costello is the sales chief, Walter Matthews is the head of operations, and Harvey Perlstein is the research head. Lots of backstabbing amongst this group of characters. And the actors were Richard Basehart. He was the head of the news department and a guy named Alex Cord and Andrew Prine. Mm-hmm. These were like, they played a lot of cowboy roles. Yeah. And Webb was the first show Was canceled. it Webb or W-E-B? W-E-B. How was it I referred it to? Webb. Okay. Did the Norman Lear apple pie ever go to series? It went to series. We were the first show canceled that season, and apple pie was canceled the next day. Apple pie <laughs> with Rue McClanahan and Dabney Coleman? I didn't know who they were, and I, I fancied myself a serious actor. Of course. Sure. And uh, did you see what Stanley Friesen did? Harvey yeah. Perlstein didn't do much different, okay? <laughs> so, Pamela Bellwood, I had a scene with her, and she went to Lynn Bolin, and Lynn Bolin said, he doesn't know how to act. <laughs> I really, I'm going to say this. I had no idea what I was doing of in course. those days. Well, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I was not particularly well-trained. Luckily, I had a little kernel of you know, ability, Mm -hmm. but I I, I really was not prepared. Mm -hmm. I thought I was going to be a sitcom guy. If I I do anything, this is what they'll do with me. If I have, think a lot of people, the neurotic people have some idea of what they're like, if they're going to be a star, where it's going to happen. Right. And I thought, it's probably going to be in sitcoms. I think I did like three of them, and I always, it was never enough time. Mm-hmm. I need a lot of rehearsal. Mm-hmm. It just didn't work out. It didn't work mm. out that way. It's fine. It's I, funny, because watching you in some great sitcoms, like Newhart, yes. where you played Elliot Gabler, the literary agent. I was his agent. It has an effortless feel. You seem on the screen to just be completely at ease amidst and among everyone. I was not. And it also seems like a, like a real character. It's funny. You I appreciate one, you saying this, but I was not. You have I was those really... two pilots, and it seemed like the apple pie one actually was a sitcom. It and was. yet you went for the non-sitcom, <laughs> even though you thought, talk I, about a fear of flying. I yeah. had created, as, as you had mentioned, this nerdy persona mm-hmm. that was fashionable for a while. Right. Mm-hmm. And that went out of fashion. Pretty quickly, but mm-hmm. I played a lot of those kind of roles. But made real characters out of them. I was talking to Jason yesterday about how having watched that episode of Hunter, yes, where you come in, great show. As yeah, I mean, it, it's a know, good show. There was a clip of me in. Yeah, it. we're gonna play it. Oh, I had never and, seen it. Yeah. Fred Dreyer. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, and Stephanie Kramer. Do you know how she spelled her name? S T E P F A N I. Oh, really? She's, she's in the scene? In, she's the I female. Think I don't think she's, I, no, no, she's not, in the scene. She's not I, in your scene. I, the one thing I remember, I think I'm smoking and chewing gum. You're drinking a cup of coffee, which ruins both the coffee and the gum. But you do that as you're delivering the exposition, and it makes the character sort of so alive and so much more than just this exposition yeah. dump that it potentially could have been. In a lot it, of these parts, you're issue. always doing some business that lends yeah. a little extra to it. So you won't notice the acting, maybe. To me, it uh, it becomes the character. It gives it something yeah. distinctive and feels like, oh, this is a real person. I'm going to play a little of you as um, Elliot Gabler here on New Drinking coffee and drinking <laughs> at the same time. Well, I hope you're satisfied. You just drove them out of the room. 
I'm surprised you didn't want to share credit for that. Sometimes I wonder if my Aunt Lillian didn't have the right idea. Dick, great to see you. Why aren't you writing? Elliot, what, what, what are you doing here? The publisher wants Pillow Talk now, so I came up to get it. Well, you, you, you didn't have to do this. Dick, you're my client. I'm involved. I care. And this way I can write off my ski weekend. So hand over that little monster. No, I, I can't. My collaborator and I are having some artistic differences. Oh, God. Well, now what are we going to do? Elliot, uh, Joanna and I will, will work it out. She just wants to make a, a few changes, and I'd rather die first. Dick, you're obviously too emotionally involved. What you need is a disinterested third party to read that book and then make a final decision. Are you volunteering? Yo. Well, I sure would get this over with. I, I don't think Joanna would go along with it. Uh, the best I can do is, is talk to her. All right, do what you have to, but if you have any problems, just remember, I care, I'm involved. I'm late for the slopes. There you go. I thought you're great. You're going toe to toe with a comedy with legend, yeah. a great deliverer of lines, and you are in the scene with him, and it's seamless to me. Okay. I mean, I'm not saying it's the highest of art, but I'm saying Bob Newhart to me is a <laughs> Quit legend. While you're at, yeah. <laughs> and I think you are you are in that scene with him in a great way. I appreciate that. I think I may have mentioned to you, it got back to me, he didn't want me to be on the show anymore. That's how you know you were good. Yes. Oh, he that's right. Yeah, he doesn't want to share why. the... You're oh, too good. Oh, see, I always thought he didn't think I was funny. No, that's, like, that's, that's not opposite. possible. It's a little Did bit of a... Did you see the scene where I came in in the... What? Yeah, in the, in ski, the ski suit. suit. Yes. That's the only thing I remember. I have no memory <laughs> of that scene, but I do <laughs> remember the ski fitting. suit. It's a suit that I think they wear when they... Yeah, it's, ice it's like skates. downhill. Oh, yeah, it's more I like an ice, ice. Yeah, it's yes, more like it's an ice skating. Ice Here you are. Wear. Uh, George, well, why don't you show the guys how to play Monopoly? Sure thing. <laughs> well, I'm off to the slopes. Nice paint job. <laughs> that one is always stuck in my thing because I, I thought I was going to do a lot of. Well, them. you did at least yeah. a couple more. I did two. I right. did too. I was happy to, to be in his presence. I really. He's well, he's incredible. Well, you've had a chance to work with a lot of comedic greats. Yes. Madeline Kahn was another one we'd mentioned. Oh, Madeline. Jonathan Winters. In, uh, Madeline, uh, I had no memory of what I did on it, but I have memory of her. And is it, had, was it a special or was it a no, series? No, it was a series. Was a ser I think it was. And ran you were on season. the series? No, I just did an episode. Oh, you did an episode, okay. And I, I had the biggest crush on her. Yeah. I mean, she was just. She's brilliant. Divine and sweet. And and I remember she asked me if I had a girlfriend. Mm. Lee. And I I think I was married. What year was that? I think so I was <laughs> I think I was married. No, I'm mean, Oh, you mean you know I was with Connie. Oh, okay. I mean I wasn't gonna It was but nineteen but we had a little eighty three flirtation. Sure. And that was special to me. While you're looking up your notes on whether you were romantically involved with your own wife or not, <laughs> uh, Madeline Wayne craves excitement in her mundane life, leading her to try every fad, dragging her friend Doris along, her husband Charlie, a romance novelist, watches things unfold with his buddy Robert, who's Doris's ex. I That's think it was presence. one season and out. Yeah. But I was, that was thrilling. I worked on, uh, I don't even, is it listed? It, the show was canceled the day I was working. <laughs> we never shot it. It was called Chicken Soup. 
and it was uh, Jackie uh, Mason. We mentioned Hunter, which I love. This is another role for you. Like you did this exposition in the scenes. And this one is quite a lot of exposition. Is here. it? Yes. A lot of words? There's a, no, it's just, it's, I'm, I'm sort of like, wow. Am I a to get through this? this? I mean, you have a lab coat. You have a lab so coat. I assume. But you're a doc of some kind. I think uh-huh. they call he you He called doc. me doc. Yeah. I do remember him. And he was, he was very nice guy. You were right, Hunter. There is something odd about that last uh, phone message from the rat. Hey, Willie, it's the rat. It's about 11.30 a.m. Listen. Meet me at the corner of Eastbrook and Delano. There's an empty lot there. You'll be real pleased. Bye. Uh, watch how the lie low message plays out. Hey, this is the rat. Heard you put on quite a show, Willie boy. Well, we're all real pleased. It's about 11 a.m. Now, do you see how you got your highest spikes on the words you give the most stress to? Right. First word in a sentence, the important words, punchline. About 11 a.m. I'll catch you later. You lie low now. Now watch the very last message. Hey, Willie, it's the rat. It's about 11.30 a.m. Listen, meet me at the corner of Eastbrook and Delano. There's an empty lot. Almost all the words spike high. Well, so what you're saying is that the last message was not the rat's voice. It was an imposter's. No, no, no. It's the rat's voice, all right. But he never said those words in that order. Hey, Willie, it's the rat. It's about 11.30 a.m. Listen. Meet me at the corner of Eastbrook and Delano. There's an empty lot there. You'll be real pleased. Bye. Now, did you hear those clicks? Yeah. I re-recorded the message and pushed up the volume. Now, those clicks are what edit sounds like. It seems like someone was taping the rat's voice and took the words out of context, edited them into a new message, which was played over the phone and into Willie's answering machine. That would account for both the excessive stress on so many words and the absence of background music. You mind if I borrow this machine, Doc? Hunter, your reputation with breakable objects is hardly exemplary. Good line. <laughs> that gum chewing is really disturbing. You know, I have a theory. I have a theory. It's like I'm eating a piece of steak. I mean, I'm... <laughs> Hunter's a good show. Fred Dreyer had great charisma. Never once. He really does, He yeah. wasn't an actor. He but just, I just didn't you know, realize... Well, couldn't have been a nicer guy. He was, uh, I guess, and it was between him and Ted Danson for, uh, for Cheers. Is that, that right? Down to, oh, yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. And he seemed <clears throat> to be like a guy, he didn't give a shit, but he gave mm-hmm. a shit. Yeah, yeah. No, he didn't he take it too seriously. No, he didn't take yeah. himself seriously. Yeah. Yeah. After a successful uh-huh. professional sports career, he's like, this is uh-huh. gravy, yeah. man. Yeah, was, what are you guys getting all upset about? He was a, and nobody he's actually to tackling me. You're hitting me. This is great. <laughs> and he was a cop that... <laughs> yeah, you mean in the construct of the he, show? The construct of the show is he's a cop who, I don't know, it was very innovative at the time, was a cop who breaks all the rules. Never saw that before. Yeah, he keeps breaking stuff and getting sort of flustered with due process. Bullcast and Crew is brought to you by Two Different Guys on a Bench, a new comedy series from American Vandal star Ryan O'Flanagan. Two Different Guys on a Bench, where Ryan talks to Ryan on a bench. We keep the comedy simple, folks. Two Different Guys on a Bench videos can be found now on Facebook at Chuckler Comedy. Like and follow Chuckler for the latest and greatest short-form comedy videos. Chuckler, original comedy delivered daily. Let's get to something good. Well, I was going to ask about, you've been both the single episode player. You've also been regular on quite a few shows. Can you talk about the difference in the mindset? When you're a guest, well, you're a foster child, okay? Mm -hmm. Some shows you're an unwanted foster child. It's just (laughs) like they leave. Some shows you're embraced, but I understand it. It's not easy uh, being a guest. Being a regular, 
it's a nice feeling. You're part of the family. You know everybody's name. For me, my greatest experiences, at least in, in the theater, are the, the dressing room, you know, mm-hmm. our, mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the cast. And being a regular is always uh, very, I always felt so comfortable. Mm-hmm. But coming on and guesting, I always felt a little off balance. Yeah, especially on these shows that have been on the I'm air for a few years. the last thing that I really uh, guested on was Maisel. Maisel, right, yeah. Okay. They were very nice. Mm-hmm. I loved what I got to do. That one was, I was lonely. But so what? I, I mean, I like, what I still want to do is uh, being a regular on a series is really fun. You, when you're talking about being a regular on a series, what about doing a film? Let's say we have a more substantial role. Does that have a similar sort of comfort feel? Yes. And uh, camaraderie, yes. even though yes. you know it's for a limited time. It hasn't time. happened too often, but a couple films. There was a film called Chattahoochee. I was down in South Carolina for a month, and mm-hmm. that was that was great. And Do you like the vagabond existence, or is it hard to be away? No, because it hasn't happened that often. The only time I really have been away from my family was I went off and did Wicked for mm. uh, a nine months Oof. and then seven months. And that was to pay for junior and senior year of college. But I didn't make, I never made it like a concerted uh, decision not to be mm-hmm. away. Uh, national tours didn't come up that often, mm-hmm. but films, I always loved going on location. I got to go to Bulgaria to do this film called mm-hmm. The Gray Zone, which is still my, my most kind of proud and mm-hmm. special moment. Directed by Tim Blake Tim Nelson. Tim Blake Nelson. Tim's used me in three of his films, and I just did oh. a play that he wrote at The Public. I did this play called Socrates. So Tim's been... Very interesting film Really director. wonderful to me, and really a wonderful mm-hmm. man and an interesting film director, but I love going on location. So when you end up with something like Ally McBeal, you were living in L.A. at the time. No, we left L.A. in uh, 92. They shot that in L.A., didn't they? David Kelly liked me from something and brought me out Hmm. and started using me. And uh, then we had a little weird little falling out. You and David Kelly? Well, not uh, not. You didn't punch him. This isn't your Charles Durning story. There was, uh, at the same time Allie McBeal was on, he did this little thing. It was like a clip show called Allie. And they wanted to use a clip from Allie McBeal on Allie of me and my agent at the time demanded that you be paid a certain amount of money mm-hmm. and David Kelly uh, was reported to me said I don't want to ever hear Lee Wilkoff's name again <laughs> Whoa. and that got back to me and I wrote him a letter because I had this nice relationship with him because yeah. he then he stopped using me on Ally McBeal and I Jeez. wrote him a letter and then he brought me back on oh he did I did seven of those you could probably go to Ally McBeal convention appearances if you wanted I to possibly could I forget yeah. my name was Nixon yeah, you were district attorney <laughs> Nixon. Nixon. I always lost, and yet you still got reelected to he that DA have job. Even listed on his thing. I wonder what the hell it was. I, I'm, so it's like a clip of the. It's like a compilation of the last I mean, week's episode like, that they sold I, into. I think so. God, Ali McBeal was a huge TV show. It did really out there stuff. Yes. Well, that was sort of his signature Very thing. Very meta right? narrative. The sort of and they, they had the the first. Uh, Co-ed bathroom. They'd all like be in the bathroom at the same time. I was never well, in Hampshire show. College on the show. Yes. Yes. On the show, we had that in Hampshire. Going back, I was about to say going back. Yeah. He knows Max Headroom. I worked with the same people because we worked. Yeah, we were part of the network, mm-hmm. and we yes. all. I'd say ninety percent of my scenes were around a conference table. Yeah, and we would watch a screen. I mean, it was 
it was the technology did had not caught up with the idea of the show yes. quite yet. Yes. And it was it was excruciating. So we spent a lot of time just hanging out and kibitzing. You know, I was just watching and we've been the watching this. is fantastic. It's really good. It's the ideas that are in there it's and some of the aesthetics. How, it's crazy how they got away with it. Well, my daughter was literally in the uh, delivery room and so they called me and they wanted me to be on the set. So it was a <laughs> 80, she was born in 87. So it was probably 86 and 88. I did, I don't know yeah. how many of those. I think there were 13. 13 episodes all told, and I think you're in every single one of them. Reminds me a lot of Brazil in the yeah. mm-hmm. lights through the glass mm-hmm. and the sort of mm-hmm. atmospherics. I said to Chris the other day, I can't think of another show that did more with obviously less of a budget. And I think it had to do get with the ideas behind it. Like, they, yeah. it had a very definite point of view. And so you forgive a lot of the, not that it's my place of view, but the elements that fall a little bit short just because the idea is so compelling in this world where television has taken over everything. Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny, and I mentioned it to Jay, he's probably bored hearing it. There's a book that I read recently that came out in 87, I think, called Amusing Ourselves to Death, which was about the rise of television. This is about the same time, and I didn't realize until reading it how relatively new in 87 television still was, and that there were um, elements that people hadn't quite thought through and possibilities that were there. There were a lot of things that we take for granted now. At that point, we're still so new and alive. So the fact that this show, and actually... <laughs> Disco Beavers from Outer Space, the fact that it had these meta things about what it's like to be Mm -hmm. watching television to get the images and the fact that everything, religion, entertainment, politics in Max Headroom all become part of television or all Mm -hmm. decided by ratings was very ahead of its time and just such a a fascinating, even if the script didn't always explain everything, you kind of go with it because there's such a strong sense of of the world. You you had mentioned about a limited budget. The producer called me at home when they got picked up for a second season. He literally called me and I agreed to take a certain salary for the second season mm-hmm. without consulting my agent. It's just <laughs> like my agent was going to kill me. <laughs> what do you mean you agreed to that? Yes, I did. He called me yeah. at home. I wanted to be on it. Just a really interesting, weird show. I like things that are weird. That's why I it like was, Cop Rock. It was so weird. It has the weirdest opening sequence of any TV show I think I've ever seen. It's like Randy Newman in like a studio environment, not with the cast. There are some cast members, but it's like Steven Bochco and like the executives uh-huh. are like grooving. It's in the like- pilot? Do 
That's the intro sequence the, to Cop Rock, not police action. But it makes a certain kind of sense. And I understand that uh, the final episode, they break out of character and do something similar, sort of. Yeah. But I guess it makes a, a kind of, I mean, as much sense as a musical about cops on television could possibly make. But it makes kind of sense because, you know, even at that time, there were a lot of cop shows. Uh, but you might as well take advantage no, of the it, thing it that separates sense. you. Yeah. You know, yeah. and, and it was a, ahead of its time. Cop shows like this are overwrought and heightened, and that's the same landscape of a musical. And so it's not that jarring. When the moments of song occur, it works. This is a little bit of a courtroom <laughs> gospel number. I believe you're in this. You are mm-hmm. in this, Lee. Has the jury reached a verdict? We have, Your Honor. Hit it. I know it's like de rigueur, just hate on cop rock, but I'm telling you, if you watch some of these episodes, the cop side stuff, the action, the interpersonal stuff of the cops and the DAs and all that stuff, it's executed at a very high Bochco-esque level. And then the musical numbers to me are often poignantly, dramatically, and kind of brilliantly staged. I'm huh. going on the record for cop rock. The thing that happened with cop rock, I had auditioned probably for Stephen Bochco show... Directed what by Nick Castle. What, what did what did what did uh, Nick Castle wrote Escape from New York? Wow! Directed the last Starfighter. Steve Bochco, his show was. Did he have NYPD Blue? Yes. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. I auditioned for that probably twenty times. Never got cast. You showed totally should have been on NYPD Blue. I I, I, I totally agree. Somehow, <laughs> they were going to cast me in this. But you got it back when you did Law and Order for like thirty episodes or whatever, <laughs> right? I did, I think. Chris was on Law and Order. 
I was. Maybe you. I was maybe on Vanilla and uh, SVU. I don't think. Yeah, I don't think we crossed. Didn't I didn't cross. do SVU. I did. I did the first season of the the original, and I did their last season. Were you like uh-huh. a judge? You were a judge. I was a judge. I was an assistant DA. I was a principal. I, I love how they bring else? back the same actor to play like different, different roles, yeah. roles in the same universe. You're like, wait a minute, that guy was a That's judge. How's he an assistant DA now? Did. What happened? But the thing that happened with Cop <laughs> he got Rock, demoted. I guess he got demoted. They wanted to make sure I could sing. Yeah, no, I'd already done Little Shop. Yeah, well, I mean that kind of this, proves it, doesn't it? No. <laughs> what more do you need to do? What I had to do was <laughs> I, was in an I, had, iconic I had to go in uh, and sing for Mike Post. Jesus. And I also That's a pressure to get that audition. I went to some place down in Westwood and made a recording of myself singing "Good Lovin'" oh by uh, the Young Rascals. <sighs> yeah, to sing that one line. Then wow. while that's we how were, seriously they were taking it. Chris. They were taking it very seriously, and all those people that were singing, uh-huh. they're all session yeah. singers yeah. in L.A. And they came up to me and they went, "You can sing," and I went, "I yeah. do, <laughs> I know, I do, I sing." <laughs> yeah. And then I sang. Uh, I wasn't supposed to sing. He's guilty uh-huh. yeah. because I'm his lawyer, and Greg Hoblet was. He said, "Did you sing?" He's guilty. I'm going to have to shoot this all over again. And I went, wait a minute. No, I'm his lawyer. And even I think he's guilty. <laughs> and, he, and they kept it. And it's it actually kind of worked. It does work. But he was furious at me. That's hilarious. Beverly Hills Bunts is a curio for me because I was a huge Hill Street Blues guy. And this was sort of the classic ill-fated, ill-conceived spinoff. Let's take this great, gritty New York peripheral character in this show that's totally working and throw him into a completely unbelievable scenario in Los Angeles. Into and a sitcom. And maybe it'll be a show. I think that that to me is I the thing. I have no, I, no memory except really uh, that uh, what's-his-name was great. Dennis Franz. He couldn't have been a nicer. I, yeah. I think I could tell he didn't give a shit about I mean, he gave a <laughs> shit because he's a person that yeah, gave a shit. But he knew. He knew. But he knew. He knew what was I going have on. no idea what I did. Here's a little of you in. In what? Episode number four of Beverly Hills Bunce. Really? Duck L'Orange. Oh, my God. Mr. Fred McCombs, excuse me. Norm Bunce. I'm working on the Intercal air disaster. Your client, Marion Harris. She called in about you. I told her not to speak with you anymore. Uh, just a, a minute of your time, Mr. McCombs, all right? Your client's got a problem. All right, come on in. You're her problem right now, Mr. McCombs. Excuse me? You got any idea how these cases work? Of course. They accumulate data, make an offer that's too low, we nudge them higher, they nudge us lower, and we settle. There's low offers, and then there's low offers. These people play on people's feelings. People are grieving. They don't want to fight. Secrets in a closet they don't want discovered. Or a weak lawyer. Say a family lawyer, people are leaning on him for support, but he don't know beans about air crashes. That's not true. Look, you're supposed to be her old family friend. Could I suggest you do a friendly thing and refer her to one of the pros, like uh, Jacob Rabbits? You're kidding. Hey, a dog is getting nearly four times what your client's getting. Look, Rabbits may be good, but I'm good too. And you could believe I'd step aside if Marion Harris wanted me to, but she won't. The woman's a saint. Uh, how's that? I mean, she's a simple, loyal, honest person, Mr. Bunce. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but overall, you think you could describe Mrs. Harris as a saint and nobody choke? You could give it a try. You mean in court? 
Short-term memory loss, McComb. She don't want this thing in court, huh? Dennis France, man, talk about a guy who is selling some material that I think we can all agree here wasn't quite up to like NYPD yeah. blue scripts. You know, I, I don't know that he's not. It's, well, a, it's a pretty I, soft I, sell. I'm saying he's like, briskly moving through it. He's, he's, yes, he's getting through the day here. I had. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> Tell you what was going on in that scene. I have no it's idea. A confusing, I don't even know what I'm. Am I a lawyer? I think you're a. I think you're a lawyer. <laughs> a schlocky lawyer. It doesn't make any sense because somehow you're. <laughs> he's then going to use your statement that your client is a saint. Something against her or something. I don't know. He's a PI and he dresses he's very a PI. badly. He does, and especially in, in Los Angeles. Well, that's, how, that's, he, he's a, that's how he's a duck out of water. Better Fish in, out of, he dressed. <laughs> ducks are uh, fine. Duck Lorange is the name of the episode. This is his L.A. garb, right? Yes. Yeah. Beverly Hills Bunts. Dennis France survived it to then go on to become Andy Sipowitz for probably 10 years on yeah. NYPD Blue. That's it. He doesn't work anymore. I don't know. I haven't seen him in years. God, if I was him, I wouldn't either. No, he didn't need to. Yeah. He's a Chicago guy. Yeah. He's yeah. from Chicago. Yeah, he hasn't worked since NYPD Blue. Yeah. I think it's wow. a choice. God. More power to him. Well, I mean, he did work from... 1965 on. Yeah, he was tired. Until 2005. Should we move on to Latchkey TV? Hello? Lee, this is our segment where we've provided you with a dated copy of TV Guide. We'd like you to cast your mind back to, I don't know, were you a Latchkey child? Or did you have parents at home when you came home from school? Mom was home. Mom was home, but we avoided her. Whoa, we just, a lot of this information is why we do this segment. Just do tell. She's not home. Really? Oh, we just, we went and watched TV. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So um, she provided a snack. And you were free to do as I you wished. Till, till it was time when okay. my dad got home and then we had to do our homework. Um, a lot of discipline. It would be great if in the episode, the edition I gave you, which is probably 85, it would be great if you were in something that was listed in this thing. So let's just see what you're... Let's see what you got. What, what, would, you you got? You be what would you be watching when the, you got home? When I got home, I have to watch Denmark's Star Spangled. It's a look at Denmark's week-long <laughs> celebration of America's Independence Day. Wait, wait. Denmark is celebrating yes. our Independence yes. Day? Yes, and that, see, that's, that's how I had to watch. That's that. good that And then there was a movie on at the same time, so I'd go back and forth called Ham, Bone, and Hilly. And I just, just the title just the alone. Title just the title alone, you're dry. Then wow. I would watch Bugs Bunny and Woody Woodpecker. Of course. Because, yeah. uh, because Bugs I Bunny, was, Woody Woodpecker. I love Woody Woodpecker. Really? And, yeah. More loved, than Bugs? Yeah, I loved Woody Woodpecker. He you don't like, hear a lot of people claiming Woody. Deserves he more than was, uh, What was his thing? <laughs> <laughs> he was, he was like... So he's like a wisecracking. Did yes, he talk? He yeah. Talked. yeah. He talked, and he he did not observe the rules. He okay. was a subversive. Okay. Like Hunter, yeah. he would not be bound by the yeah. like, mm-hmm. regulations, and and he would peck a lot, and like the trees. Yeah. I was when I yeah. first saw an actual That's woodpecker, right. I was very disappointed. That's true. There would always be a lot of explosion of wood chips and everything. This is not him. Down quickly. This is in the neighborhood. People think. Oh wow! It's him. Oh wow! <laughs> People think it's him. Well, who is that? Lee has well, just shown us a tattoo. That I've liked that. I like this this illustration. It's actually for. A, uh, uh, a like an, a lubricant company, an oil yeah. company. Oh, yeah. I think I've I got seen it, that I got before. It, I got it made in Ohio. Oh, okay. I've seen it before, but I don't know. Yeah, I it's like, the uh, isn't that in Raising Arizona with the killer and high both have the same tattoo? And I think it's that. It is it that, that same tattoo? I that would be amazing. So. We should do Raising Arizona. And then I'd watch Father Knows Best. Are you familiar with that? Oh, of, of course. course. Like in uh, Chris, Chris has never seen it. And Green Acres. 
Jaja, uh, huh? And, well, You're a red-blooded man. It, it was more about the surreal, like a talking pig, and uh, <laughs> the comedy was very, really out there. It was. Was it? Really, really. Uh, what's oh, his name? Yeah. I love him. He was the- uh, Oh, from- uh, He was from- Which Mountain? Which Mountain? Yes. Eddie Albert? Eddie Albert. Yeah. Eddie Albert, Jaja Gabor, Pat- Pat Haney, all these character guys. Sure. I was always, Love the always, character. always attracted to the character actors. Uh-huh. What's the greatest that guy you ever met in your acting career? Like, did you ever meet an Emmett Walsh? Or... I worked with Mehmet Walsh. You did? We called him Mehmet. Mehmet? I did a film called Chattahoochee, which mm. uh, starred, uh, Gar- uh, 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 I mean, I had Thanksgiving with Gary Oldman and, uh, and uh, De- Dennis Hopper. <laughs> Sat was this at a, a restaurant. sober Gary Oldman? I'm pretty well, sure. He, if it was, he had some. <laughs> he had he he had some days, but mm. generally, very sweet. Wait, Dennis Hopper, Gary, and Gary Oldman, Oldman, and Emmett, Emmett Walsh, Walsh, and you were in a movie me, together. Me, Matt Craven, <laughs> oh a guy named Gary Clark, Franny wow. McDormand, uh, Pam. This uh, sounds good. Pam Reed. Uh, it was directed by a guy named Mick Jackson. It was destroyed in the editing room. Oh, mm. really? Uh, but it was... Uh, Chattahoochee. Mm. In 1955, Florida, a Korean vet has a breakdown and is incarcerated in a maximum security mental health prison where patients are abused. And that I sounds like a played, good story. Yeah. I played... Most of my stuff was with Gary or in Dennis. And you're an inmate? And I'm an inmate. Did I, you have to do crazy I was crazy. I yeah. shot my wife's fucking head off. <laughs> I blew her fucking head off. So yeah, I work with Emmett, and he was probably the most, what's the word? Well, first of all, he would not eat Thanksgiving with us. Why? We all loved him, and he didn't, he, he just was. He didn't enjoy like, the love? I didn't think so. It was like a thing Was with he a him. loner? He was such a loner. Right. Uh, but that's a thing, isn't it? Yeah, Aren't there certain actors who are like, you want to be alone in the crowd, you want to be alone on the set? I think he wanted not to be alone, but he, mm. I couldn't figure him out. But I, I hear I don't I think he just ever... wanted to sit at his feet. I always loved the older character guys. I mean, when I yeah. did. You, God, he's been in so many. When I did the front movies. page, it was all Sure, these I love, older the, love the front page. Guys. Saw it at Williamstown. And there was a character guy, his name was Ray Sarah. He was also. A bag man for the mafia, and one day he brought to. Um, you mean concurrently with being an actor in yes, this thing? Yes, and he one day he sure. brought. Uh, you know, we give you our valuables uh-huh. before the show, and he said, "I got twenty three thousand dollars in small bills," and the stage management wouldn't hold it for him. And those are the guys That's I loved. Good. I loved character guys. Got yeah. Emmett Most, in Raising Arizona. Yes. The story is that he had this huge part in their first movie, uh, right. Blood Simple, Blood Simple, and then. He said, I want to be in all your movies. And they really didn't have much for him to do, but they gave him these scenes in it because those scenes are pretty uh, extraneous. Well, I'm sad to hear that he wasn't like, not that he wasn't warm, but that he was just sort of remote. He was by no means a prick. Yeah. He wanted to be alone. Yeah. Mm. And it was, made me sad. Mm. Uh, The most famous person I ever met was Cary Grant. Ooh, that's pretty big. I was doing Sweet Charity in Los Angeles, and after the show, actually I was told by like the publicity people, don't talk to him. <laughs> He's gonna be downstairs, don't talk to him. And of course, I he, went up to yeah, him. Yeah, Mr. Grant. And I said, That's a Mr. Mr. Grant. Grant, right? And he said, have we ever met? I said, no, we've never met. He said, we've met. I went, 
I, I, think, I think I remember. remember. <laughs> and I said, do you watch a lot of bad television? And I said, you've seen me on TV because we haven't met. What year was this? 1985. Like, oh, and Hunter. Was, you're the best. guy drinking coffee and you know, chewing gum you at the know same Cary time. You know Cary Grant was watching Hunter yeah. and Scarecrow and Mrs. King. <laughs> and like all those guys always watch that stuff. He would drop acid. And yeah. Yeah. I mean, he was famous for dropping <laughs> yeah. acid. He was watching Didn't Hunter. he do like a one-person show where he would extol the virtues of acid? I never heard of no. that. No. I believe at some point later in his career, he uh, did sort of a an intimate evening with Cary Grant tour where he spoke. And I think during really? that, he would talk a lot I'd about how much that. he liked doing acid. Please go on with uh, your television listings. I would watch the first few minutes of West Side Story. The movie? Ridiculous. Is it great? No. Okay. No. <laughs> it's all Do so we need a remake of it? Well, I'm puzzled. I'm Look, I mean, if do we? the first one wasn't great, I know this about take it. another. Isn't that the whole thing? That's, uh, and then there's some yes, fighting. It's two hours. It's Romeo and Juliet with greaser gangs in the streets of yes. New York, right? Yes. Okay. It's like a less funny grease. <laughs> I would watch the first few minutes because it's pretty funny. Now, I am in this. However, you're in something. I am in this. In? So it's let's called not worry Ellen. about the time paradox of him. Like I'm going to watch on TV. This this out. Thing yes. that it turns it's out called Eleanor, like... First Lady of the World. It <laughs> of was a TV. It was a TV movie. It was about Eleanor uh, after he died. And you played Eleanor Roosevelt. No, Jean Stapleton, <laughs> who I didn't know at the time. And then I met her son, who's one of my closest friends, named John Putch. And then I became quite. Friendly with Gene. Friendly with Gene. And I did this TV movie, although I looked at my IMDb. And it's not on there? It's not on there. Why is that? I don't know. Who did you play? I played a reporter. I I didn't have a name. But you had lines. I had lines. I actually edited today, and I added it. And hopefully it will be on because then I'll have 101 IMDb credits if they wow. give it to me. And so, Eleanor, the first lady of the world, I know I'm in it, even though I'm not in the credits because I remember we yeah, shot. Yeah, okay, Lee, you were in that. Sure, sure. Uh, Let's keep moving. I, I, uh, I would watch it. They treat me the same way with the Star Wars. Sure I was in it. And that's yeah. why I'd well, watch it. Maybe they it. cut you out. I, I get residuals for movies from movies that I've been cut out of. I get residuals from this. You do? Still, like wow. a couple cents. The system works, Chris. Yeah. Yeah, I get residuals from like I was in I love the movie it. Xanadu that I was cut out of. You were in Xanadu? Mm-hmm. But he was then cut. Right, got to go was, another couple hours. And I was cut out of we're gonna have to. We're going to have to and I don't re- this. I remember I had <laughs> the flu the day I worked. But they cut me out of it. But I Who still were get you? residuals. I don't remember. You don't remember? No. I mean, granted, it's Xanadu. No, it's probably a I lot of drugs. To God, oh, I, I assumed. Remember. I'm assuming it was Olivia Newton-John's part. <laughs> and no he had a cold. It's like, forget it. Was, you're out. I Olivia, remember, you're out. I remember <laughs> shooting it. I mean, I remember where we shot it. We shot it on the lot at Universal. Oh. And I remember I was had Talk some about scene a song. I'm walking and talking to somebody. I don't remember who, but a minute. But my point is, I still get residuals. But Eleanor, <laughs> first lady of the world, the reason I'm sure I'm in it, because they shot it on the QE2 down in Long Beach. Uh-huh. And I, I, would, I was there. So I know I'm in it. And yeah. then I would watch... Best of Groucho, just because it's Groucho, and I oh, think yeah. you're a think. weird small child who's into Groucho Marx, of course. Then, uh, for some reason, I would watch J- Japan Today. <laughs> Japan Today. Wait, Japan Today. Is, is there any? Are there any slugs on the stories they're covering? No, it just says magazine show. And then I would watch Beverly Hillbillies, and then I'd go to bed. That's a pretty good TV day, and nice and varied. 
Yeah, like mm-hmm. Japan Today and Beverly Hills. Yeah, he wants a little information about the world, but he also uh, he wants to take it seriously. I loved I, when I was a kid. There was a guy on in Cleveland on Friday nights, Goulardi. Oh yeah, Goulardi. Mm-hmm. And Goulardi is sure. what's his name's dad, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson, and he would show horror movies. And yes. like three times a year, he would show the black and white original version of Little Shop of Horrors. Really, uh-huh. which is why I was familiar with it when Interesting. I got when I got called and said, "Do you want to audition for this music?" Musical. Wow. So Goulardi was like a pre-Elvira type That's right. present, presenter. Was, yeah, but a local. local he was yeah. local. And I'm pretty sure he was high. <laughs> and he would blow up. He would, what, what he would be able to do, some sort of technology, the movie would be on. We'd be watching it. But he would insert himself in the like movie. And he would blow up like firecrackers during the breaks. <laughs> little lady fingers. So good. Another uh, fun fact about that Little Shop of Horror movie, Jack Nicholson That's correct. Right. was in it. Yeah, that's right. They shot that film. Myth is, and I believe it, in two days. And if you watch the scene in the dentist's office, the uh, dental chair falls over, and that's the end of the scene. They didn't want to like reshoot. <laughs> so we don't reshoot it. And, and also, uh, you can, how are you going to do better than that? Like that's a great button. And then to when get I did Little Shop, actually uh, on the West Coast, the play, the people from the original came and saw it. Wow, and that was pretty great. Oh, that's so fun. So that must have been when Nicholson was like a contract He didn't player. come see it. Yes, he he, right. he did he did lots of Roger Corman yeah. movies. Yeah. I think he even Roger did some Corman writing and directing it. for that's right. Uh, right. Yeah. Now, when they made the 86 version of the movie, did you have any expectation, hope? Were you heartbroken when no. uh, I, what's his name got the part Rick Moranis? Rick Moranis. Rick Moranis. Uh, I was no, because I didn't think you never get the movie. You, you knew just that. don't get the movie. But well, of the course woman, you hope though, Lee. But Come of on. course I hoped. And Howard Ashman claims, and I believe mm-hmm. him, that he pushed to have you for me. But Rick Moranis was the nerd of the hour. He right. had done Ghostbusters, but the woman that played Audrey mm-hmm. did yes. the movie. Yes. I was more disappointed when I didn't get to do London. I thought uh, that was feasible. I've never seen the movie. I saw it when it came out. Was it good? I remember enjoying it. It's okay. People like it. And yeah. they did, uh, somebody arranged a private screening room. Wow. I remember crying for like the first five minutes because I guess I was disappointed. Sure. Mm. And then I went, eh, yeah, fine. Whatever. Yeah. And they're doing it again. Yes. They're will doing you another be, will one. Will you be involved in some promotional I, way? I will fight and try to be considered for Mr. Mushnick, but they'll go They'll go with a... I don't know. I think we're living name. in a time now where that gets a little bit more respect and courtesy as a casting choice. I mean, who are they going to get? I will talk to Alan Menken, and I will say, you know, put me on the list. Because yeah. he's seen me do it a couple times. Yeah. But don't that. you think, I mean, the, the, the point no, of I, doing these revivals now is to have the whole experience of... Complete. There's the element like the of fandom complete. and the sort yeah. of legacy element of it. I absolutely think so. I've got to have somebody doing so a I think campaign it's, for you. It might be possible. Now, did I tell you that I saw you in Little Shop of Horrors in probably, must have been 86, 87? Mm-mm. Were you in it then? You might have seen. Uh, well, it was at the Orpheum. Well, I did it. I did it. When it opened there. Right. And then I filled in when somebody uh, was on vacation. And you may have seen I don't know me. if I filled I saw in you. for the next five years. I know that I saw the one where the things came yeah, down from the top, not yeah. the monster off the, no, the, the back. Top, the top. So that was the Orpheum, right? That was the Orpheum. But I wasn't doing it all the time. Then. I didn't save my stub. Did you see Ellen Green? I don't I, think I mean, so. She I was, was she 14, was long gone. 13 or 14. Really? But it was a long time ago. Yeah. It was 30, uh, 1982. 
And yeah. uh, so you would fill in. I would fill in when uh, I did it six months in New York, six months in Los Angeles. Then when I came back to New York, I whenever somebody went on a big when the Seymour went on vacation, right. rather than using the understudy who understudied other characters, they would, they use, would use me. That was an excellent latchkey TV, Lee. Thank you. Thank you. And I'm so glad that you got to see yourself. You got to see yourself as a in child. Eleanor, wow. that's first like, lady of the world. That's like a nugget of an if idea for a movie. If he was really in it. I mean, if he was really in it, yeah. It could be I'm a sad thing. It could be one minute. of those sad things. I might be cut out. I don't know if I'm in the cast list of like Xanadu, but I was in it and I get residuals. <laughs> right. Wait, if they cut you out of the movie, they still have to give you the residuals? Yes. That's great. It's weird. It's uh, You're not listed here in Xanadu. In Xanadu. A lot not of people in Xanadu? Are. No, wait. Scenes deleted. Joe Montana gets a scenes deleted credit. You don't get a scenes deleted. What about Davis Rules with the great Jonathan Winters? No memory of... I, to, I, I don't think I had anything... I didn't have scenes with him. I mean, I'm disappointed that I didn't get to no work scenes with, with him. him. No. no I Did don't you have, to meet him at least? No, I have uh, no memory of doing that show. Really? No. Isn't that weird? No. There's a couple shows that I just cannot tell you what I did on. <laughs> or that I, I mean, that I can't even... Most of them I have a slight memory of something. That one I don't. If you had scenes with Jonathan Winters, you would I would. You would remember. Yeah. In The Construct, which I guess is Randy Quaid plays... He's like a widower. He has three children, and he lives with his dad, who's Jonathan Winters. So Jonathan Winters has all these incredible scenes with the kids. Right. The one I saw, he was giving them, like, terrible advice. And he's obviously just making it up right on the spot in this incredible way. (laughs) Somebody was telling me they did a show with Jonathan Winters, another sitcom. He'd have his own camera, and the camera would stay on (laughs) him. And it would... Because you could never... Would just shoot him. You just have to catch him. And then they'd edit it, and it would be inserted. He would do 15 minutes. Oh, God. <laughs> Without stopping. Of course. It's sad. We just did vacation, and Randy Quaid yeah. is such a great comic actor. And now yeah, I don't know he, what, I don't know what happened. to the dark world. Yeah. Well, listen, no, it you, happens. you risk it. Sometimes and, uh, you risk it. If you live out there on the edge. Sometimes you're going to fall over. Sometimes the dental chair falls over. <laughs> and you along with yeah. it. Okay, Chris has a special way of taking us out. We often go out on a final line, and I thought appropriately. Thank you very much for joining us, for talking about your work, and for giving Jason and me, as well as our listeners, a ground truth view of acting as an art, a profession, and a life. It's not that Lester Rosenthal's stage name, Lawrence Rose, disagreed with the acting teacher when she said, do something else with your life. He knew she was right. It was going to be a life of rejection and humiliation and injustice. It is for all of us, and that's that. He tried to figure out a way to do something else with his life, but he couldn't. It was in him, it was in his blood. No matter where he was born, this is where Lester Rosenthal would end up, here amongst his people doing this. Thank you for listening to this episode of Full Cast and Crew. I hope you enjoyed it. If so, drop us a line. You can email us at fullcastandcrewpod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at at fullcastandcrew or on Instagram at fullcastandcrew or, of course, find the podcast on Facebook. And if you really, really enjoyed it, take a screenshot of your favorite episode on your podcast player and forward it to a friend so they can subscribe and figure out what you're always laughing about. And if you didn't enjoy it, eh, I don't know, drop us a line anyway. I can take it.